right, guys. So today's guest is Jay, owner of Ignite Racing Fuel. Um, that's probably just the tip of the iceberg on what you do. You're kind of a serial entrepreneur. You've always starting something. Mm-hmm. Every time you start talking about your businesses, my ears kind of <laughs> wide open because I'm like, what's Jay doing? Because he's always kind of doing something cool. I don't even know what I'm doing half the time. I'm just going for it. That's just, all I could do. Yeah, <laughs> Something I mean, new comes in my head and it's like, hey, let's just, it's a snowball coming down the mountain. Let's see where we're, uh, where it's going to go. Yeah, and I know you from Racing Fuel, which mm-hmm. is probably what, like, five percent of what you actually do right right yeah it's actually my small it, i call it my fun company so the racing fuel where you've done stuff in fd you've done stuff in drag racing you're a huge part of streetcar takeover you were a huge part of the cletus program when mm-hmm. i started with him and now all my cars run on ignite what kind of was like why ethanol why what got you into ethanol so what actually very few people know i was uh after 9-11 happened i went to new york city Mm-hmm. So I was 22 years old and went and saw the World Trade Centers, um, and it was just absolutely heartbroken and, and just couldn't believe the aftermath and what had happened. And I'd been, you know, went to college, got an associate's degree from Vincennes, came home, was farming. But like I said, I went out there and and saw the destruction and thought, wow, this this is terrible. And a guy happened to come up and say, hey, more of this is going to happen. The Middle East, he was a Middle Eastern, said, we can control you. Uh, you're dependent on us. Said, no, we have ethanol. And didn't really know much about it at the time. And I completely immersed myself into it and decided I'm going to build an ethanol plant. Mm-hmm. So at 22 years old, I went out and raised $80 million to build a ethanol plant. So this was before there was Pumpy 85, IndyCar didn't, there was no ethanol in IndyCar, there was no ethanol in NASCAR. Nobody really knew what it was back then. Yeah. So, um, you know, the whole idea um, with Ignite was I wanted a way to promote ethanol and agriculture because one of the biggest things is we're not, you know, it's such a big industry, but we don't really do a good job of explaining ourselves. So I wanted an opportunity to be able to educate people on ethanol issues, but also on agriculture issues out to the masses. So I kind of use that as, you know, Ignite's kind of my platform to be able to do that, to be able to give people a glimpse of, you know, what is it like and what are questions about ethanol? Does it hurt your engine? And uh, it just kind of took off from there. Some of my friends asked me to develop a fuel. So uh, when we started making ethanol at CIE, literally the next week I already had a formula because I already was bringing ethanol in from other facilities Mm -hmm. and playing with it to come up with my formulas. So that was kind of the other thing is, you know, I didn't race. Um, I, I worked hard to develop formulas and, and send them off, but I had no background in that. You know, I, I didn't have an engine. So it was like we literally yeah. would make a fuel, stick it in a dirt track, go out and be like, please don't blow up. Please don't. Oh, he, he did good. Like, heck yeah. And so what we did is we started taking guys, you know, kind of more lower end guys. And they started being the top guys because we were gaining 50 to 90 more horsepower than what they were getting on race gas. So that was kind of a cool thing, and that's kind of how we got our start was uh, basically 9-11. You know, I came back and said, hey, I want to do something. The corn prices for us in the farm world were like $1.70. We were below break-even. There was a thing called an LDP payment. So the government was actually paying the farmers just a little bit to keep your head above water. So all you're doing is, you know, breaking even at that point. So that's how it all came about. That's, you know, it came back and, and it's been an amazing opportunity to promote ethanol in the racing world. But it's also been an amazing thing of what we've been able to do in the community with all the charity work that we've been able to do with buying defibrillators, police dogs, you know, buying, um, 
uh, iPads for schools. And so that's kind of when I look at things and I, and I, and I look at uh, what I've been able to do and accomplish, I think one of the coolest things is to create this massive company but also to look at everything that CIE has its name on yeah. and Ignite, and it's been a much bigger world. We've been able to actually impact people's lives. So CIE is kind of your mother company, and then yep. Ignite and... Ignite's a whole separate company. Yep, yeah. yep. So it's a whole different deal. Kind of in the same brewing uh, aspect. Right. CIE is the manufacturer. They, they make ethanol and mm-hmm. high-grade alcohols. And then Ignite's a whole separate company, so I get my ethanol from my ethanol plant. Yeah. Yep. So that's an interesting aspect because you also have, like, you're automatically in the alcohol business. Right. Because I've heard you can just drink this stuff. Yes, yeah, so we have to add 2% denaturant so you can't do it. And um, kind of an interesting little thing that happened to me. I, my daughter, um, who's 10 years old, about a year ago, we're driving by the ethanol plant. She's like, hey, Dad, this is kind of interesting. So you sell the steam coming up and would say, hey, if you see steam, we're making money. And she's like, Dad... We make because I also farm. Also, that was you know, the other big thing is using our corn to be able to help you know make the alcohol that you guys raise. And so she's like, Dad, how many people can make money three different ways? Like you farm, you sell your corn to the ethanol plant, you make some money. Mm-hmm. You make some ethanol, sell it to the racing field, make a little money. Then you sell the racing field to the racer, and you make a little money. She's like, Dad, that's pretty cool. You actually get to yeah. make money three different ways. But when you stop and thinking about it, how many companies, how many people out there are completely vertically integrated like that? Yeah, that's what I was so shocked. Like, I've seen photos of you on your combine, you know, actually just harvesting the corn and knowing that it's going to be in one of my barrels here. Yeah. Not that long after is really a cool deal because a lot of places are just like, we sell ethanol and we buy it from the ethanol Mm -hmm. factory up the street. So it's really crazy to see, like, your kind of farm to... Yep, like race field, field the wheels. Yeah, it's like the whole like farm to table thing. You're like exactly farm to my fuel tank. Yep, and, and so it's been cool because I know things about ethanol that nobody else really does. And and ignite was created to educate the public on ethanol. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, we do UTVs, wave runners, jet skis. Um, we have multiple people. I mean, hundreds of wave runners out there that on their ticket on, on when you buy a wave runner it says, "Do not run ethanol in these." Yeah, these are completely stock. All they could adjust is the ECU and the props. We have race teams pulling them off, like what you can go buy and running E85 and E90 in them, and have been doing it for multiple, multiple years. Yeah, and never an issue. So they're just kind of saying that to cover themselves because the most general consumer probably would do it wrong and end up with some water in their ethanol. I right. would imagine that's... And, and they're afraid of it, but it, but like I said, we've been doing it for so long, and it's like, no, you can stick ethanol in anything, and yeah. it will not hurt it. You know, that's what, you know, they were they were so nervous. Even the ethanol industry was afraid. They're like, Jay, you got to quit posting, you know, pictures of Wave Runner jet skis because what if somebody puts E10, what if somebody just puts regular gas with ethanol in their jet ski? I'm like, let them. It doesn't hurt it, guys. Yeah. It's fine. It's good. It will not hurt it. It'll run it cooler. It'll, It'll be run it better cool, for the It'll be car. better. And so, you know, like I said, I've really broken down a lot of doors because now when you look today, Snowco, VP, Renegade, you know, when I got started, nobody knew what ethanol was. Nobody mm-hmm. was going to ever have an ethanol fuel. They didn't like it. But what has everybody done? Everybody's now got it. And we've been into 40 different countries, and you look all the way around the world, and like in Australia, there's a company doing ethanol fuels. So our drifters who came here and drift like the fuel went back home and actually got ethanol companies there to start making fuel. So we've actually, you know, made an impact on the whole world as far as ethanol of getting it into the performance world, which is pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. So 
I, I know I've heard that a little bit from like, oh, so-and-so started, you know, kind of looking over my plant to see what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a, it's obviously normal in the industry where you're looking flattery when someone tries to replicate you it's okay it's not a bad thing means you're doing something right and there's quite a few people that you know they they run red and maybe they don't even say it because right yeah i've actually got a lot of people that run my fuel that don't tell people or will stick in other barrels and put different type of like perfume stuff in it so they don't they don't want people to know they're running ethanol so when i smell red i know oh yeah i I know it smells like whiskey yeah so but, you know, it's, it's been cool being able to do that, and, you know, I've been doing this now for 20 years. And, you know, the, kind of the exciting thing is what we really enjoy, What I think what separates Ignite, and even the guys that work for me, Matt, Lance, Jake, is we give everybody a personal feel. You know, we had guys at this past event here, Streetcar Takeover, come up and say, hey, man, we called or we met you in an event. We're not buying your fuel yet, but you're always talking to people. We see you out having a good time and you're just so approachable and you're willing to help answer questions and and just chat with us. And and they're like, you know, that's how we grow our business. It's really more, it's not about the numbers. I don't want to be the biggest fuel company. I like where I, I want to give the best personal attention to our customers and it's like the relationships that you'd be able to build. You know, the, the good thing is we want to go win races. We love helping people set their personal best but also kind of the funnest thing is being able to watch people grow. I mean, I remember when Justin Chase got started Streetcar Takeover, the boys over at uh, Shift Sector, Jason and Ryan, were working on yeah. half-mile stuff. You know, being there when, like, all of my drifters now all have kids, like Michael Essa, you've got Justin Pollock, um it, It's Dude, funny Garrett. to, it, yeah. you know, Garrett now. And, it, and so it's kind of cool to be able to be in the see where everybody started in the progression in the full circle of how everything's coming along. And now you see, you know, in racing, you know, everybody's got little ones. There's going to be the next generation coming up. So to me, that's kind of one of the cool things, too, about what we do is actually build relationships, get to know the families. You know, Cooper, I remember meeting you and your your lovely wife, too, and coming out to events. And so it's to me, it's like, hey, let's go race. Let's go win. Can't wait. But it's also always exciting to come out and see you guys. And see what you guys are doing to prove upon. And, you know, and the one thing is it's great to be successful yourself, but there's nothing better than bringing up a group of friends and everybody working together and watching everybody succeed together. Yeah. That That is what is really, really cool. It's definitely awesome. I mean, that's why I've always had the Ignite banner on my car because any time I pick up the phone, you're freaking on it to answer <laughs> any questions. Like, you'll talk to the tuner if they need it, like, Whatever Even it takes. things like that, like, because some tuners may not realize they put some freaking spicy fuel in the car right. and they're like, something's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> they shouldn't be doing well, this. There's, there's a lot of misperceptions about ethanol. And, you know, E85, when we created the E85 program, there never was such a thing as E85. It was, you had winter blended 70% ethanol, 80, and you had summer blended 80, and it was blended 85 octane. Your average vehicle saw an 8 to 12% mileage loss. Yeah. About eight or nine years ago, the ethanol industry made a major mistake. They got together with the oil industry, and the oil industry said, hey, if you guys allow us to change up the formula, the STM spec on this, we'll put in more stations. Well, now E85 is allowed to be blended 51 to 83%, and there's no spec. You can literally take your Mountain Dew, go dump it in the tank, as long as you've got 51% ethanol. The government does not care what's blended with. Mm-hmm. So your average vehicle today now sees a 35 to 45% mileage loss. 
So all the time we're getting phone calls, hey, why is ethanol plugging injectors? It can't. It's a solvent. It's a cleaner. It's tuner proof alcohol. Yeah. You know, the issues you hear about ethanol, it's not the ethanol. It's the crap that it's blended with. And the oil companies use as a waste stream. You know, one of the other big perceptions is, you know, hey, the water testers, they do not work because you can go to four different areas of the country. You have to have your altitude, barometric pressure, temperature. You know, if it's 40 degrees versus 90 degrees, your your alcohol content gauge on there will will be different. Yeah. The other thing is a lot of the ethanol plants, almost all of the E85 out there, the pumps is blended with natural gas blood concentrate, which is 56 octane and no lubricant. This is a good denaturant because by law we have to add 2% so you can't drink it. So that's what it was meant for. Your average car would never even notice it. When you go to the gas station, you fill up with um, just 87, 91, 93, and you got E10. You're never going to know that's in there. It was never meant to be used as denaturant for E85, and that's what everybody is using. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing about that is <clears throat> that throws off the density of your fuel. So it actually a lot of the times guys will say, hey, I'm reading this. The fuel density is off because of what that is. And so you really don't know what you're getting when you put fuel in the pump. And it's like I tell guys, you know, hey, I got good E85. I'm getting 80%. Well, guess what? You can have a 70% blend of ethanol that's better than 80% blend based on what the denaturant is. Mm-hmm. So it's like I tell everybody, I don't care what your alcohol content is. I care what's blended with because that's what's really going to mess mess with your tune quite a bit. That makes sense. And you've also told me before where, like, an ethanol sensor you put in your car for $60 is yeah, the, not going to tell you yeah, what Based off of what they were tuned, what they were using, you know, to, to validate, to come up that percentage, right, it, it's going to be different. Yeah, and you and told like me you said, have, like, the a density, million machine for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, we have a GDC <laughs> machine that tells you everything. And, I mean, we had a customer come down from Chicago who is like, hey, I don't, I shouldn't buy your fuel. You know, I've got Grady 85 here. You know, I'm showing 89. percent All right, we went and tested it was 63. percent And he didn't even know what to say. Yeah, he was pretty embarrassed because he was pretty up. You know, your fuel, hey, it's it's not that high. You know, I can get it. I, there's no reason. Then he tried our fuel and he gained 80 more horsepower. And he's like, okay, there's a difference. So. Like I said, it's, it's been fun. It's the, the Ignite. You know, we designed it um, for a couple of things that we added in was not upper loom because ethanol is extremely dry. Mm-hmm. The other thing is pure ethanol has no flame. You can't see it's like methanol. So one of the things that was very important for me was to be able to actually develop our fuel so you could actually see the flame. Huh. So um, Colette, I don't know if any of you guys saw the video of her drift car catching on fire, but if you noticed, you could see the red flame. Yeah. That was by design because if I had not purposely, and we originally came up with the fuel, you never would have seen that. So from a safety standpoint, that's one of the things that we went into and in developing our fuels was for that to be able to happen for the safety of the drivers. That's a, that's a trick deal to do because when I was at Summer Nuts, they wear special goggles to where they could see the methanol flames. Right. And even if you can add it, an additive, that would be massive because some of these cars that are on fire, you can't tell at Correct. all like you're saying. Right. And Colette's was definitely a very serious fire yeah. in the cabin and all. And I think the fire almost looked green at one point. Right. And so, but it was designed, if you looked and you watched the video, it's like the reddish, t- like a, you could see and that was, it did exactly what we designed it to do. Yeah. So you have designed yellow, red, very specifically. Most people kind of, I'm sure even like the big guys don't have as much design into their right. They they really don't understand it. Um, We were the only ones that actually did octane rating of the fuels. Mm -hmm. Um, We had to develop a one cylinder engine. Um, One of the other reasons, like 
we can talk about it is when we made we made the samples and we sent them down to Dixie Labs to do the octane test. Uh, they sent it in the airplane. You can't do that. You can't send flammable liquids. And so we got a call from the FAA freaking out because we mm-hmm. sent a couple of gallons of fuel accidentally. It was supposed to go by land, but accidentally went by air. Yeah. So we had the FAA involved in that, and that was kind of a little oh, bit of a mess. That's great. So what about um, shelf life? Shelf so life. That's, eth- one, that's one big hot yeah, topic yeah, everybody it, says. Ethanol never goes bad. I mean, you could have it. We've had it in cars for a year, year and a half in the tank. Go back and fire it up, and you make the exact same horsepowers the day um, that you opened it. Um, I'm comfortable with it. If it's sealed up tight five to seven years without an issue, there's no problem with it. You know, um, hard alcohol, you know, ethanol is beverage grade alcohol. We have to add denaturant. So if you get a bottle of Jack Jim Beam and you, you know, you take a couple swigs out of it, come back two to three years, still tastes like Jack and Jim Beam. Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, all the misperceptions you get, it's not the ethanol, it's the denaturant. So the denaturant is what really absorbs, like brings in the moisture. Yeah. Because ethanol is extremely dry. You could take four to five glasses of water, dump it in a drum of my fuel, stir it, you'd never even notice it. Mm-hmm. But when you get, like, bad pumpy 85, it's absolutely that the denaturant's what's actually pulling the water in that's causing a lot more of the issues. So the fuel would be better if government didn't interact with it. Correct, correct. And, and E85 is on its way out. Um, you know, the ethanol industry is really struggling. Um they stopped making flexible vehicles in 2019 because of the CAFE standards, which the CAFE standards was tax credits being given to the auto, to the OEMs to push ethanol, and those all went to electric canal. So that's why they're not making it. And then the other thing is if you've got a 35 to 45% mileage loss, people aren't running. You know, yeah. The gasoline market's a 145-billion-gallon market. The most E85 we ever did was like in 2017, and it was like 270 million gallons. It's nothing. Yeah. So the really the only people that are running E85 really are the high performance guys because it's so much better. Even a bad E85, pumpy 85 is better than some of your good race gases. But those are being pulled away. Um, you know, one of the big things that we have issues with is the EPA, which is a very hot topic. You know, don't we all? <laughs> don't we all? You know, it's like I had a friend of mine that worked at DOE. I used to spend twenty to thirty days out in DC working on legislation. I worked a lot on uh, the two thousand, I think it was eighteen farm bill that legalized hemp. So I spent a lot of time out in DC. I've actually passed federal legislation. I've went in front of the House and Senate ag committees, worked with those guys, and you know, our biggest um, our, our biggest enemy. In the ag world, the ethanol world, and the racing world is the EPA. Um, you know, one thing that I've been trying to do is create a consortium. Um, I've, been, I've talked to Indiana Farm Bureau. I've talked to American Farm Bureau, uh, National Federation of Independent Business, and try to create a coalition because the EPA, my, the, the person dictates the most to me of what I can and can't do on the farm is the EPA. It's not USDA. Mm-hmm. It's the EPA. You know, I, I tease my friends at DOE and at, U, at uh, USDA saying, hey, you're useless. The EPA trumps everyone. Why do you guys even have a job? I mean, you, you're, yeah. you know, you do what EPA tells you. you. There's no need for you anymore. So the EPA that knows nothing about farming and should not be touching farming has control over everything that we do. Guys that of what we can farming. spray, when we can spray, setbacks. I mean, as much now that they're telling... You know, they're telling ethanol plants, they're telling meat processors, they're telling everybody, hey, you got to start working with farmers that are, like, trying to be carbon neutral. Well, we grow plants that suck the carbon out of the air, guys. I mean, is it farming, we get more and more efficient. The equipment we have today is so much bigger, so much more efficient. We don't have near, use near the diesel that we used to use. Mm-hmm. 
but the fact that it's the EPA coming in doing this, you know, it, it's just mind blowing. And so what I tried to do is build up a team of, you know, one thing about the farming industry, there's a lot of money there, but they're not very vocal. The racing industry is very vocal, but there's not a lot of money. So it would be the perfect yeah. group to be able to bring together because proofs and numbers. And we all have the we all have the same enemy. It's the EPA yep. overreaching. And so that brings me up to the good friends over at SEMA and PRI. Um, I, I've went up against the lobbyists from SEMA and PRI multiple times because they do not like ethanol. They are anti-ethanol and have been for multiple, multiple years. And is that because they They're, have sponsors that maybe are they represent on the race you gas know, side? Not on the race gas side because of they're saying it hurts components like weed eaters, different type of um, – because you got to remember, SEMA represents anything aftermarket. It's not mm-hmm. just racing. It's Tecumseh, it's Honda, it's your weed eaters, your chainsaws, your small engine manufacturers. So those OEM engines don't like ethanol. Well, they do, but they're using cheap plastic from China and stuff. Uh-huh. And they're claiming the ethanol is what's hurting them. And we know for a fact, there's actually been some research done um, from a group out in, um, the, oh, i got to remember what the name of it is. Uh, out in Kansas, Coolidge, Kansas, and they actually did testing, and it's the benzene, toluene, it's the aromatics and gasoline. It's not the ethanol. It, it's the actual petroleum-based products is what eats up your hoses. It's what you know yeah. chews into your plastic and, and makes it brittle. It's not the ethanol. So um, there's been a lot of research done on that to be able to prove that. And then when we ever provided that to the manufacturers, they don't want to talk. They just say, oh, well, mm-hmm. well hey, here, here's independent testing. Here's your components. Here's ethanol, E100, gas, E10, E15, E20, and all these others. Then here's also some, you know, here's some um, of the other denatures you guys are blending in your gasoline with, with these parts actually in. We have videos of this, and you yeah. can actually see them expand contrast and how they're actually eating into the the components, the so benzene, like the rubber hoses, and exactly. all that. Exactly, you can all see how it's making terrible Chinese stuff uh, instead of like PTFE. Goods. Yeah, instead of you doing what's right, you know. It's, but hey, this is cheaper, so we're going to go the cheaper route, and that's what the issue was. So SEMA PRI had to kind of stake their claim on who they stand behind. Yeah, so that's why when it comes to this issue, they're right there with the EPA backing them on things. So they can't they can't come out really against something because they're playing both sides of the fence. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that we do know is that when you tune a car, you make it more efficient. You have less emissions. Yep. You know, one of the things that we try to do is, and we were on a, there was a couple of us um, on a call, a couple of guys that have been, uh, you know, hit with EPA issues, JH, Burnett, PFI, Lund. Um, and there was a couple of other people that wanted to have their name mentioned because they don't want the EPA diving into them. But we, we had multiple phone calls, and we were talking about going and actually doing some independent testing of vehicles at EPA test facilities mm-hmm. to be able to show, hey, here's a car on 87, here's a car on, like, E85 and different blends and race gas. So we could be able to collect the data to be able to show, hey, look, you're throwing these guys in jail, and all they're doing is actually making it more efficient and you have less emissions. Yeah. Um, SEMA wasn't a fan of that. PR wasn't a fan of that. You know, I brought to them, hey, w- would you guys like to partner up with some other people in the industry. Because like I said, we all have a common foe. We, if we all work together, that's how you're going to come about, bring about change. They don't want to do that. And they have a lot of money and control. They have and a lot of money. Influence. And, and a thing that's kind of, a thing that bothers me about SEMA and PRI is they've went out and they've done all this stuff and raised money. 
When I've checked with the guys that had issues, the EPA, they have not offered to help pay any of their legal bills. They have not sent their attorneys to be able to help them. Yep. If you think they really wanted to make a difference, they would come out and back them and say, hey, we're going to help provide you legal counsel to be able to help do this. They didn't do any of that. Mm-hmm. But they used everybody as kind of a puppet to help them raise money. I've got a major issue with that. The other thing is with the RPM Act, it's very useless. It doesn't do anything. You know, we already – I had a spreadsheet put together with the Senate and the House committees. And on that, you could be able to see, you know, if I'm from Colorado, I had it broken down to on the Congress and Senate side what state the committee members are from and actually list the shops. Because if I'm in Indiana, I can't call a congressman in Colorado. They're not going to listen to me. Yeah. But if I got five shops and they're calling saying, hey, this is a major issue, what can, can you help me? They weren't willing to, to do that. So the RPM Act's never been even put into a committee. You know, there's two ways about going. Yeah, you draft a bill, it goes in the committee, it comes out of committee, and you go back and forth between the House and the Senate and you get it in, or use a vehicle bill. If they really wanted to get this thing fixed, they could have done it in the infrastructure bill because, as a lot of you out there know, they always pass bills that are that nobody ever reads that are like 1,000 to 1,500 pages. Yep. You throw it in there. It's called a vehicle bill. You throw the language in on one of those bills, and they could have very easily taken care of the issue that we've got now and repealed the EPA, uh, what they're citing is what the issues were with the, the Clean Air Act. So, But they didn't do that. You know, lobbyist's job is never to fix the problems, to kick the can down the road, look important like you need more money, and say, hey, yeah. I got your back. I'm here to help you. Give me some more money. Maybe we'll get it next year. So that's kind of my opinion on that is, you know, we, we've tried to bring in other groups and other people, to, but they, they don't want to listen. They don't want to do anything. You know, Dr. Um, Dr. Summers, I believe that was his name, the, the head of uh, PRI. What was, do you remember what his? Oh, um, is it not Jamie Meyer? Jamie Meyer. Sorry. Yes. Dr. Dr. Jamie, Jamie Meyer. Meyer. I mean, very nice guy. Um, I've met, talked with him He's several times. He's the head times. of GM performance for a yeah, long time. But he had no clue on this. You know, I said, Hey, you're out front pushing this. Have you looked at doing this, this, and this? And he, he's nothing more than kind of a figurehead to go out and pat you on the back and Hey, we're here to help support you and, and console you. And, but yeah, raise nothing some money, raise some money. And, and so I think, you know, it's like I tell racers, think about it, look up stuff. You know, don't take all my word for it. Do a little bit of due diligence. Follow the money. Yeah. And then you can start to, start to see what's happening and, and where things are going. Have PRI and SEMA completely left the diesel industry behind? Have they, like, the diesel industry we all know got hit really bad. I feel like they have. And I feel like they kind of got pushed off the, the lifeboat first. They get off the, yeah, they were the first ones to go. Like, they're like, the lifeboat's full. Sorry, yeah. bud. And people like JH Diesel, you know, yep. very well got hit really bad. Correct. And, and there's so, and I can't mention his name. There's an individual who was a lead attorney for Secretary of Energy who's a very good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't get any more higher and more more powerful in that regards. Um, I brought him in on some of the conversations. He's He was just working in the, in the administration, the Biden administration, but he left, just left. But anyways, last time I checked, marijuana is federally legal, correct? Like mm-hmm. you, you can't, but yet there are states doing it, correct? Yeah. Still federally illegal. Still federally illegal. illegal, but it's happening there. Okay, well, you mean to tell me I can go out and grow marijuana and sell it in Colorado, but I can't tune a car now? Yeah, so... It, it, it makes no sense. So why can't we have sanctuary states for racing? I'm, I've am i had this conversation and, with people and who are I like, Florida's safe. Exactly. Is it? And, and I've so. brought this up to people. And then I've also said, if you another kind of an interesting fact is if you look at what happened in the tobacco industry... You know, in, in working with this attorney, he said, look, we already got proofs of precedent here. 
know, when the ta- tobacco industry got nailed and got fined, did all the retailers have to pay the fine? No, it was the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. So all these dealers that are getting hit that were doing what they were being sold, it's like almost like double jeopardy. They should be hitting the manufacturer, not the people doing the installs. Because that's the exact yeah. same thing that happened in the tobacco industry. They didn't go out and say, hey, you're selling cigarettes at the gas station. We need money. We're going to fine or shut you down. No, they went to the tobacco companies, mm-hmm. shut them, you know, started fining them for stuff, making them changing packaging. That's So there was two opportunities. And, and I brought both those to SEMA and PRI, and they were brushed them under the rug. Have you ever had to return a forgotten bag of adult play toys to a pair of sweet old grandparents? Or have you spent your summer cleaning up protein spills at an amusement park? How about going to work every day in a flea-infested casino? Hopefully you haven't, but our guests have. Welcome to the Insiders Podcast. Each episode, we bring you an explicit account from a hotel and hospitality industry insider. To listen to these stories and more, go to theinsiders.com to subscribe. That's the insiders, I-N-N-S-I-D-E-R-S.com. Yeah, I know that happened with Brent where he was like, okay, you just find me for selling all these ECUs, call up the company and they're like, ignore the call type of thing. Right. And it's like, well, why why you go after the guy that's yeah. just the retail side that's making the least amount of profit? Correct. And maybe sold five of them this year instead of the company that maybe sold 500,000 of them this year. Right. And that's where it's kind of tough. So an interesting thought I just had, are, are any of the electric power grid on ethanol and why would they not if if you could just keep reproducing ethanol it's they not are, they putting are not, carbon monoxide into the air right right no no they're not they're all pretty much coal yeah everything else the 19 uh sites for the grid yeah none of them are on on ethanol would there be any reason not to or is it just kind of um i really think there's some stuff coming about with hydrogen that's pretty exciting that i've got my that i'm really i've been looking at um actually it's the if I looked at my plan for CIE 20 years ago, the only thing we're not doing is making hydrogen. If I pull out everything we're doing today mm-hmm. is what I dreamed about, except for one thing, making hydrogen from ethanol. Because the easiest way to get hydrogen, you can get three parts of hydrogen from ethanol versus two, which you get from everything else. But no, right now, currently, yeah, I, I just don't think it's a viable, a viable thing. And, and the government's trying to do away with ethanol. I wouldn't be shocked if, I mean, E85 pumps are getting fewer and fewer, as you guys see. Yep. Um, and the government's really trying to do away with ethanol. They, they don't like it. Um, I wouldn't be shocked within three to four years, it, it's gone. You don't even see any ethanol in your gasoline, period. Yeah, that's so crazy, because I remember when it came out in, like, 2008 or nine. we parents yeah. got a Tahoe with flex fuel on it, and Dad was like, oh, we can... You know, it doesn't get as good gas mileage, but it's a bunch cheaper. Right. That was the only thing I yeah. ever knew about ethanol at the time. And it doesn't have to be that way. It can actually, you know, an E20 to E30 blend actually gains you better gas, better mileage than mm-hmm. gasoline does. It helps with the cleaning. You know, you've been able to tell in your engines, what happens when you turn your engine down after you've been running ethanol? They look like they're brand new. Yeah, it always There's no great. carbon buildup. There's no nothing. And that's what a little bit of ethanol, it's like giving a shot of steroids. Um, you know, just a little bit of ethanol in your gas helps clean it up, knocks a lot of the emissions out. But there's so many positives. But where the ethanol industry went wrong is, you, you know, everybody in the ethanol industry who's trying to speak on our behalf is in D.C. riding subways. 
Yeah. You know, it's like I tell everybody, the the uh, the ethanol industry, unfortunately, is a bunch of, it's a group of vegetarians trying to sell T-bone steak. You know, if you ask them, hey, have you ever been on a dyno? No. Do you know anything about ethanol and how it works when you're burning it and, and during combustion and what it does for your engine? They don't know. They can't tell you anything. And so yeah. the, the, the person that really I feel bad for, it's not really the ethanol industry. If it goes away, it's the farmer because they've been lied to so many so many dollars have been sent to corn boards and so much money in the farmers have been propped up on, hey, ethanol is going to be around for a long time. We're going to be able to grow the market. And the only, you know, it's been 20 years. And the only thing the ethanol industry could tell you is, well, we had the government mandate it. Well, those mandates are all coming in. We never told the consumer, we never told the individual why it is better. Why should you be burning ethanol? Yeah. What does it do for you? We've never done that. And so the farmer who's been pumping all their money and, and grain prices and land prices are going up, 40% of the corn crop goes to 40% of the uh, corn crop goes to making ethanol. When that dissipates, it's going to be detrimental to the ag industry. And one of the other things a lot of people didn't know is when COVID hit hard and when everything came to a close, if you remember, a lot of the meat processing plants stopped. So when you're in the ethanol industry, when you're fermenting, CO2 gets off, comes off. So one of the things we had at CIE is we were making around, I think, 300 to 400 ton, I can't remember, between there, a ton of CO2 a day. And it was going to bottling for, like, chilling for meat packers. So 65% of your CO2 in the United States that's used comes from ethanol. Well, mm-hmm. when COVID hit and oil dropped to nothing and everybody stopped and they shut down like literally 70% of the ethanol industry went idle. Well, guess what? Only a handful of us had uh, CO2. We're still pumping it. Yeah. Meat processing plants shut down because their chillers run off of CO2. There's repercussions. There's things that the ethanol industry provides. The average consumer is not even aware of like Coca-Cola, Pepsi, the beer companies were running out of CO2 because the ethanol industry was down. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing that we do is, you know, it, corn comes in. There's so many different products we can make besides the high-grade alcohols and that. But there's corn oil that comes out of that, and you pull this excess oil out. So what's left is whenever you take and, and you grind corn and you ferment it, what's left is a high-protein feed. So you still only be able to feed like 10 to 15% of that, that protein into a ration. Well, by pulling the excess oil, you can feed 40 to 50, so you've got more of a premium, better protein. Mm-hmm. But when you do that, you've got a much better feed that is much more efficient for the animals. And so you've got a, you know, a, basically a uh, steroid protein that you're feeding your animals now versus what it was in the past. So, so when you start getting rid of ethanol, you're going to start losing your CO2, your corn oil, so now your animals are going to start getting a feed that is mm-hmm. less good. And there's several other byproducts that actually come out of the process also. And so people aren't thinking about, hey, what, what are the repercussions here of this? You know, hey, let's do away with oil. Let's go all electric. Well, guess what? I mean, over here, you, you got a plastic water bottle, but if we start shutting down more refineries and everything, everything you've got in your life is made out of some type of plastic. Well, guess what? We, we stopped using gasoline and diesel fuel. What is that going to do to the cost of everything else you've got in your life? You know, people aren't thinking on down the line, actually, what, what's going to be coming about some of these decisions that are being made today. Yeah, and it, to me, it doesn't really make sense if we're talking about renewables. How much more renewable can you get than something that you can just grow year after year? Exactly. 
and your only real consumable probably is fertilizer. Is fertilizer, and, and we're going to be growing corn. Like I said, and the thing is, you, there's a net gain because of the, the feed, the CO2. There's so many, like I said, people just say, okay, we're well, just making ethanol. But when you factor in all the other things that add on to it, it's like yeah. adding interest. Everything's a byproduct. Everything's a byproduct. They're, they're all there's, there's, zero, there's zero waste in the process. Yeah. And so a lot of people don't know that and don't realize that. So, you know, it's like the ethanol industry always says big oils are our enemy. I never saw them as that because they need us. We need them. You know, pure ethanol is 116 octane. They can take a dirtier fuel, blend it with ethanol, and that's how they come up with a higher, higher octane level. Mm-hmm. But they need us because a lot of the oil they're bringing in now, a lot of the stuff they've been actually using has been a lot lower, about three to four octane lower than what was in the past. So the ethanol is a perfect. So to me, the oil industry is not my enemy. They need us. We need them to be able to work together. But the government is trying to stomp us out and them out. And so first one to go will be the ethanol, not the oil. <laughs> yeah, so I've, I heard some rumblings about that probably like two years ago, like fuel's getting worse. You think your car you know, should be getting X gas mileage. And all of a sudden you, it dropped down a little bit and so, your 93 isn't as good as it was. Your 87 is not as good as it was. And then even things like DEF are basically all fertilizer. Correct. Just being abused for urea no and water. Yeah. Yep. And so it, it's interesting. So, you know, the EPA here, they're coming out after us racers, but guess what? Starting in 2022, they no longer go and pull samples out of gas stations to see. So the oil companies can now use and blend what they want. So you are getting a dirtier gas. You are getting gas with less energy. And the EPA is no longer doing any type of testing for them. Are so, they- so why they're coming after the racing saying we're hurting this, they are now letting. And, and I don't mean as the oil, but the gasoline, you know, your, your pump gas. But they're letting them off scotch free. Where hey, yeah. there is no you're not no one's being held accountable now for that. Are you a car enthusiast looking for an exciting new podcast to listen to? Check out the Test Drive podcast hosted by Lebo Dead. This podcast is packed with discussions about some of the most iconic vehicles in automotive history and inside knowledge from behind the scenes. From the Mustang to the Camaro, we cover it all. So buckle up and enjoy the ride. Listen to Test Drive on your favorite podcast app today. Can they even hold anybody accountable? Because the way that I've understood it is all these companies just dump into the same pipeline. And then whatever comes out on the other side, they know how much they put in. So it all kind of blends, like yeah, you know, BP, of, Exxon, kind of just throw it all in one It's kind of all the line. same thing, and they'll send like a thing, and it'll clear it out. And then that, so right there, that's where your pumpy 85 comes in. Because a lot of times, if they're not using natural gas well hug condensate, when they do that flush of the pipe, whatever is between, that's what they blend with their E85. <laughs> oh, so it's like a mystery blend. So it's a mis- kind of a mystery blend, too. So that's, you know, natural gas, what I can say, and that is actually what gets used. And because there's what else you going to do with it? It's, it's a blow grade. You really don't know what it is. It's dirty. It's got gunk. And they, and they shoot it to, to clean. So that's what they actually use. And your $8 beaker with a sticker on it probably isn't going to tell, gonna you, tell anything. you anything. Exactly. Yeah, so that that's an interesting um, angle, and it's kind of tough because we have no concept of the fuel that goes into our daily drivers. Right. And it could be the worst fuel going in, and 
you won't know at all. You never know. And you're just playing Russian roulette. I mean, we get 10 to 20 calls a week from people blow their motors on Pumpy 85. Mm-hmm. And they're asking, well, why aren't you? And I was like, well, mine is, you know, specific. You know, we're the only company that actually, you know, VP Snowco, those guys are going to get, no other company actually makes their fuel. Mm-hmm. We do. We control it 100%. You know, that's pretty neat. Even around the world, there's nobody else. There's no other company in any of the foreign countries even doing their ethanol fuels that actually own a plant that makes yeah. their own product. So that's kind of a, that's an advantage for us also. For sure. So at an, at an event, you're sitting there at your booth. I come up and I say, hey, my car's tuned on Pumpy 85. I don't have any around. What are you going to tell me? Are you going to tell me to throw some red in there, some yellow? I, because that's some, kind of a... You could throw some red, yellow, uh, or yellow is E98. We have to add 2% to nature in it, so you can't drink it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, we could throw any of those in. You know, guys will come up and ask, hey, I got Pumpy 85. I, I've heard you can't run your fuel with it. Yeah, you can. There's no issue. You can dump it in. Our fuel's got no lead. There is no MTB in it. There's no race gas. It's always kind of funny when uh, we'll be in an event and someone will come up and be like, so you're cutting this with, with VP race gas or... Yeah, they would love that. They, I mean, if, yeah, yeah, they'd be telling everybody if that's what it was. No, that's not the case. So, like I said, it's my own concoction I came up with, but our fuels are designed so you can go back and forth. I've got a 2023 Ford F-350 with a 7.3-liter Godzilla. I had a guy at the event yesterday ask me, well, can you run this in anything? Pulled out five gallons and dumped it right in my truck in front of him. It's not flex fuel. It's never been tuned. I run E85 in every single – I read the, the red or my E85, but I run in every single vehicle that I've had. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never had issues. The only thing that might happen is your check engine light comes on because it thinks it's um, sucking air. It, it, ethanol needs more airflow. And so usually what happens is if you put ethanol in and on flex, your check engine comes on and it just thinks your air filter's plugged, and that's why. Yeah. But also one thing is a lot of people, a lot of times, and I'm glad you brought up the sensor stuff earlier. I forgot about this. A lot of people sometimes will dump the fuel in and be like, well, it's only shown like 50 or 60%. Well, sometimes it takes two to three tanks. You know, your, your adapter, you know, what it's sensing in there doesn't just happen a snap of a finger. A lot of guys forget that. They'll dump fuel in and they're like, well, my sensor's not going up. Or they'll, Sometimes it takes, depending on the brand and everything else, it might take one, two tanks for it to actually start reading properly yeah. to get it more accurate of what, what alcohol content it is. Yeah, that's um, that's an interesting one because I'd, I'd be very worried pouring a very spicy fuel into my yeah. car if it's just tuned on Palm B85 because... But there is no such thing. But there is, yeah, yeah. There's no such thing as E85. They really have no idea. And and like I said, you still don't know what the nature is. Mm -hmm. You know, it comes down to it's. You know, guys are always telling me a couple funny things. I laugh and they tell me, "Well, I got a pump E85 tune." That doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. And then they're you know telling me, "Well, I bought one of these conversion kits, and all the conversion kits do is shut off your check engine light." Mm -hmm. So now, racing bodies. Why are they not like NASCAR? I don't know. They're what they running put in their an E15 blend. Why so little? Uh, the ethanol industry came in and gave them money, but part of that is because a lot of the states are going into they got to start meeting emission standards. So the only way they can actually run is to have ethanol in the fuel to be able to get to the emission standards down to where so they could run. It was worth them going and racing in California a couple of weeks ago to right. have their cars have to meet. Like, cause exactly. that, they have to, yeah. That's exactly. what it seems like. They just yeah. raced out in California Correct. on the smallest track I've ever seen. Yep. No, they still have to, they have to meet emission standards. You know, and you look at the West Coast, a lot of the racers are leaving California and different places. Mm-hmm. You can't have generators there. 
you know, Nevada, Texas is really picking up a lot of a lot of people mm-hmm. out there. So you told me you have what four thousand acres of yeah, yep, yep, corn and beans, and we'll go back to hemp again someday. But uh, I'm fifth generation. Hopefully, my daughter will be sixth generation. Um, it, it's funny because I'll be out in the tractor and combine, and I'll be talking to people. No, they'll, they'll think they'll get a message. You'll be like in between ten o'clock and one or two o'clock in the morning. And I'll answer, and they think it's a recording, and they're freaked out. And I'm like, hey, what's going on? And they're like, I thought I was going to get an answering machine. I'm like, no, 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 dude. What's... And they'll hear beeping in the background. I'm like, what is that? Well, I'm out in the field. You know, I think one of the funniest things ever was I had a customer one time. This has been like four or five years ago. They called me up, and I was going around to turn, and it was coming up to kind of some end rows. There was a ditch bank, so the, 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 going back and forth, the turns was really quick, really sharp, because you're just running out of space. And so it kept beeping, beeping, and he's like, well, why in the hell would I be buying fuel from a farmer? I said, who do you think, who do you think grows the corn that makes the fuel that you buy? Well, I, don't want, I want to get my fuel from a fuel guy. I said, look, I know the ethanol and what you're asking about this product. Yeah. Better than anybody you ever. I, I'm like I said, I grow the corn. I, I do all of this. Well, that's just stupid. He hung up on me. It was kind of funny. It's one of those calls that just, yeah. I never, I just can't but laugh every time I think about that call. You don't trust the farmer that actually grows the corn. Because I imagine not all corn is the same. Right, it's not right. Like- and so I'm explaining to him, hey, you know, and I was like, you know, it's kind of like uh, Tommy Boy, you know, you want to stick your head up the bull's ass and look at Yeah, you take the word, butcher's uh, word but for it. Exactly, <laughs> same deal, and, you know, so it's it's kind of fun. But the other cool thing is I love it when people, whenever anybody's passing by, um, you know, I can't we can't do tours of the plant anymore because of the stuff that we're doing, high grade and things like that out there. But they can see it for my racing fuel, and I always love people coming out to the farm and, and putting them in a tractor, combine, and like I said, and also using that, you know, you know, racing and ag, I mean, we're, you know, fewer in numbers. Mm-hmm. It is, it's expensive to get into, so you want to make sure. There's just a lot of similarities with the industries and yeah. the battles that we're all facing. And so, like I said, it's pretty cool to be able to mix the two and, and to be able to promote both of them to help each other understand things. Do you think it's even possible right now for somebody to get into farming? It's about impossible. With the price of uh, land and the, pr- the price of equipment is through the roof, the amount yeah. of credit you have to get. You know, kind of the, the unfortunate thing is, like in our area, there's seven or eight farmers are getting ready to retire and their kids didn't come back. So to me, bigger is not always better. I like small family farms, but you've got no choice but to keep getting bigger. Um, and the cost per acre and all of that with equipment. I mean, you're talking tractors costing $700,000, 750000 you know, your combine's 800, 900 grand. The corn head, the bean head, 150,000 a piece there. You throw a semi in, you got another 45,000. Your planters are 200 grand, 250. Yep. So you're talking, you know, just to get going and rolling, like if you're in a thousand to 3,000 acres, I mean, you're, you're up there two and a half, three million dollars just in equipment just to even get to that point. Before you even harvest a single thing, before exactly. you even got a piece of property. Yeah. It, you know, it's like I tell farming's a little bit different. It's you are rich on paper and, and poor in cash. Yeah, it's a it's it's kind of a dying breed, it seems yeah. like, and that's a very scary thing. Because like race cars can disappear and we'll we will move on in our right. lives. But farming can't disappear. No, no, no. It's not just like... Gonna... It's all in God's hands. You know, we can't control what we grow, like the yields and all that. You know, mm-hmm. you may have a drought or rain or hail or wind, and you're stuck, you know, with it. And that's kind of... You just brought up a very valid point, too, with the racing thing. That's the way the government... You have needs and wants. Yeah. The way the government looks at racing, it's a want. It's not a need. Yeah. And that's kind of the problem we've got, like, with the e, with the EPA and those guys. That, that's one of the big things. You don't have to have it to live. 
you know, and the, and the part of the deal with the racing industry, they think, well, we're so big, the EPA can't come in and shut us down. Well, look what they've done to the coal industry. Mm-hmm. Look what they've done in other industries. You know, the, we used to have aluminum plants. We don't have aluminum plants in the United States anymore. Yeah, and I don't think we're that big either. It, I don't think so we're that even though, But the industry, but you have a lot of racers. Oh, we're so big. They don't care. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they do not care. And, and the sad thing is everything the EPA is doing against us right now, you know, this ha- started happening under the Obama administration. You had Ryan Cunningham out in California got popped. He was one of the first people to get hit yeah. doing tuning. And, you know, so my question to kind of PRI and SEMA is we already knew this was coming about. Why weren't they out ahead of the horse? Mm-hmm. Why did we sit on our hands? And now we're being defensive when you got to be proactive out ahead of it. They knew. There was tracks being shut down. I mean, one of the other things that's happening, I, I feel bad for track owners because the EPA is coming out and they're pulling soil samples all around the tracks. You have wrecks. You have, you're going to have contamination. Yeah. And they basically are saying, hey, we're going to come out, we're going to test, and you either have to get this cleaned up, which is going to be super expensive, or just shut your doors and let you leave, and then we'll come in and remediate it, and that's your options. And so you look at the number of tracks that we're losing, A, from urban sprawl, people growing out, building houses, but also from the EPA coming in and trying to literally shut them down. It, it, it's scary. It's scary. It's a, it's a tough situation, A, in agriculture, because you got not a lot of young people coming out, but also I see that in the racing industry. There's not really a whole lot of the young people coming into the automotive world. You know, you look, you know, Cooper, you're, you know, 15 years younger than me, but you look at, you know, the amount of people your age, you know, when I was in school, everybody had to take shop class. Everybody knew what a wrench was. Everybody, you know, a lot of, everybody did everything. You know, we had a building class. You had to go build walls and do all this and that. That doesn't happen nowadays. You know, how many kids you look at and say, Hey, go grab me a wrench or go get me a socket. And they're like, what? You know, they don't even know what that is. Yeah. And so going forward, you know, with the economy too, taking the hit that we've got, you know, with interest rates going up and, and food prices are just now getting to where I think they got quite a bit to go. Uh, I think food is still relatively cheap. I think it's got another 25 to 40% higher to go yet. From um, the farmer. From the farmer. Just because, for an example, um, on the inputs that we have in hydrosomonia that we use, which is a fertilizer that goes on the corn, yep. two and a half, three years ago, 300 bucks a ton. We're at 1,500 bucks a ton right now. Dry fertilizer that we would put on, you were talking 45, 55 bucks an acre, 225 bucks an acre. Well, our corn prices, our food prices haven't equaled out to that massive jump yet. Yeah, they got to take probably a couple cycles. A couple too. cycles, and the farmers are taking the hit on it. You know, look, just look at diesel fuel. I mean, we run through 30,000, 40,000 gallons of diesel fuel. When you're going from diesel at a buck fifty to four dollars, mm-hmm. and you're going through 40,000 gallons, you know, that's a big hit. Yeah. Also, so when you look at food pricing and all of that, and with insurance, then you got labor going up. Also, I, I, food is not even close to where I think it's going to be. So you're going to have a lot of people out there. Do I go racing this weekend, or do I put food on my table? It, it, it's going to be a, a crazy couple of years. I don't see any kind of. I, I wish I could come back and say, hey, man, I think we're in a maybe next year, but I think we're like in a two to three year cycle. It's going to be pretty. Pretty bumpy. It's not going to be great. It's not going to yeah. be running sideways. I think it's going to be kind of a down, down year for everybody. I've been kind of predicting that we're going to see a lot more like local racing because people aren't going to exactly. take the you know two hundred mile, three hundred mile, four hundred. I mean, I've driven thousand miles. Great for race. local tracks. Yeah, exactly. Like you're going to be like within your two hour drive, correct? And you're probably not going to venture out of that. You're going to see less. Yeah, out of state plates at your 
direction. Exactly. Yep. And that makes sense, and it's unfortunate because mm-hmm. that's how events like Streetcar Takeover do really well. Right. And they have a point series. I'd love to travel to all of them, but I can't. I can't feasibly right. make that happen. Well, I see that in the Wave Runner Jet Ski World. I mean, they went from two series that were pretty much the the king to now everything starting this year. Everybody's doing regional because it mm-hmm. didn't pay to go from Florida all the way to Lake Havasu to the East Coast. I mean, they were literally crisscrossing yeah. the country for eight events, and nobody. And when you win five hundred dollars, that doesn't. That doesn't pay the hotel, let alone the diesel, to be able to get there. So you're exactly right. I think it's going to be a good opportunity for the local tracks to give them a kind of a boost and a help. And and what you'll see, like streetcar takeover, a lot of people that may not have went, that 200-mile race will suck more of them in because maybe rather than them going to different events, it it may help them kind of pull more local Yeah, and you might not be worried about a heavy hitter showing up from out of state. Right. You know, like, I know my racing community. If somebody shows up that's out of state, like, oh, I don't know that car. Right. I know my community pretty well on, like, what class is going to show up. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be the same 15 cars. We know that. Exactly. And even with... um, the traveling and winning at races, I've always joked, like, payouts haven't raised with inflation yet. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else has kind of gone up, but payouts haven't yeah. really haven't really hit that. But, yeah, TX2K coming up, I know a lot more people that are like, ah, I just can't make it happen this right. year. Well, there's no, the, you know, you get that beautiful trophy. The sad part is that trophy now costs four times as much. So instead of getting the payout, we put it into the trophy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I always say that, though. I say the trophies are more important because the money's gone quick. Yeah. And the trophy's kind of there forever. Mm-hmm. So I, I always push my event promoter friends, like, make yeah. cool trophies. Make cool trophies. That's what people want. Mm-hmm. That's what kind of gets people going and excited because, you know, 500 bucks to win. Yeah. That don't cover shit. No. <laughs> Unfortunately. Nope. Kind of one of the other cool things about racing, I'm in so many different industries. I mean, I had a wireless internet and a voiceover IP company for a while. And uh, the cool thing about racing, you never know who you're going to meet. Mm-hmm. It's like I tell people, a lot of people out there are in a job that they hate. There's nothing wrong with taking a risk. You know, you've done that. You've stepped out on your own to do your own thing, which is amazing. And I encourage people to do it. But racing can also open so many doors to people because when you go to an event, you're there to have fun, you're there to race. But if you're starting your company or have a company, you never know who you're going to run into because you could run into somebody that could become a future customer also. Yeah. You know, and, and so that's kind of one of the things that the racing community that has really helped me to get into a lot of these other industries that I'm into. I would, I would not have been able to do what I'm doing today if I had not been in the racing industry that opened some of these doors to be able to make these contacts. Kind of like the golf course. Exactly. You know, they always say everything happens on the golf course. Exactly. In business and-, and, and so the racetrack's been, you know, and the people you meet out there, it's been an amazing ride. But it's been a lot of, there's been a lot of great people that have helped me along the way. But, but it's been one of the cool things is to meet people and, hey, I can connect you with this business or I have a friend that, you yeah. know, and, and to be able to help some people out that way also. Well, nobody shows up with a, quarter million dollar car and rig right and got there by accident they exactly. all have you know most of them are in like construction it seems like a lot of the yeah, racers a lot of, exactly yep. a lot of like the x275 cars i see it's like <laughs> some kind of construction on the side yep um so i was thinking the guy that's like okay i have been running red i'm mm-hmm. switching to methanol mm-hmm. what 
why bother? Does it even ethanol doesn't lose its potency? A... Ethanol doesn't lose its potency over time. Like meth, you don't have to drain it; it's not corrosive. Mm-hmm. Ethanol and methanol actually burn the same temperature. We have guys three to four thousand horsepower with no intercooler. Yeah. So if ethanol was not as good as methanol, any car would not be running it. Mm-hmm. If you think about that, because who really pushes their cars? Well, who pushes an engine harder? On boost and amount of fuel and all of that, any car, nothing's going to touch the abuse that those yeah. engines take. And they all run ethanol, not so, methanol. Yeah, do you think that that's a little bit of like a misconception snake oil I, I, thing? Well, I think it's just kind of a misconception, but I also think it is, when you look at the price of methanol, it is just so cheap. It's interesting thing about methanol, it's banned as a fuel in China. A lot of your methanol comes from Asia. There's actually only like five to six countries allow methanol as a fuel. So it's kind of funny. The EPA is nailing everybody for things, but yet they're allowing methanol to be ran here. When in China, methanol is banned. It is not allowed to be. You can't go over there and race, can't do anything with methanol in your fuel. Hmm. But they're pumping it over here. So that is one of the reasons why I think a lot of people, it's it's just the cost. It's just so much cheaper. But, you know, people always ask me, you know, my fuel, from the moment it is made till it comes to me, it's been distilled less than 50 hours. We stick it right. You can't buy beer fresher than what we make our fuel. When's the last time you saw a date on a methanol can? Yeah, I never paid attention. What's the know. octane of it? I got no where did, idea. Where did it come methanol. from? I, and, I honestly, and, and, yeah. and if you ask, I'm just, and everybody always comes up, and I was like, well, I could tell a born-on date. I could tell you where it came from, when it was made. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows on meth. It's like, okay, well, where did it come from? What's, what is the octane rating? What, what date was it made and manufactured? They can't tell you. And that's kind of the same advantage I've got over race gas. You know, if you look at my competitors, they all buy totes and have big tanks, and it goes and sits and sits. A lot of times when you think you're getting fresh race fuel, that stuff could be a year to year and a half old, depending on when the chemicals are made. Mm-hmm. Mine is like snap of a finger. Every other day, I got a semi coming. We're loading. It's, I mean, made right now and out the door and on its way to you. Yeah, it's not sitting around. It's not sitting around just waiting forever. So, like I said, on the methanol, A, it's not corrosive. You know, a lot of guys that run meth have to go in and worry about and draining it and all that. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more temperamental um, with the humidity and temperature swings than ethanol is. So those would be two two big factors that you don't have to worry about with us. Yeah, so, like, your heat of the day tune-up is going to change a lot with something that's completely right would it get heavier or lighter i guess because that's how they like in a lot of rules in racing they measure your fuel by weight correct and i've never really gravity yeah i've never really kind of got the concept of how you specific gravity test of a fuel right so like you i don't really know a good answer but i'm trying to figure i don't know how to technically answer that i know what i know in my head but i'm not sure quite how sure how to answer it um but yeah yeah with it you you run it you'd be able to run it thinner and, you know, methanol, why do people run it? It's for the cooling. It's not that it generates so much more power. Mm-hmm. Why do you burn meth? You're pumping so much fuel into your engine to cool it, they usually have a return valve. You know, they usually have a return line taking the excess fuel out. Just because there's so much. Because there's so much. And the thing with ethanol versus methanol, we burn about 70% less. So you're burning a lot less fuel. Yeah. And you got to think, an engine's nothing more than an air pump. It wants oxygen. Mm-hmm. Well, you got friction, so if I'm putting seventy percent less fuel in there, what's that going to do? It's going to allow everything to rotate. It's going to allow everything to happen with a lot less pressure mm-hmm. built up on it. Yeah, because a lot I've less always, friction. I've yeah. always heard like if you're running out of fuel system, you just toss some like pump gas basically in there to kind of save yourself. Pickle a little it. Bit. Yeah, yeah. You can kind of trick not having enough injector or fuel pump right with 
pump fuel. Mm-hmm. Not exactly pump fuel, more like a like a um like a gasoline based yeah. fuel, I guess you would say. Yeah. Yep. That's kind of how you save it. So we were talking a little bit about some of the other ventures you're in. I know mm-hmm. you said DJI. And yeah. that's that's a pretty interesting avenue. Yeah. In um, I went into the, uh, the guy that works for me has his pilot license, so I bought two massive drones, uh, T uh, T30s. Mm-hmm. So we're able to spray about uh, forty acres, fifty acres an hour with them. Um, right now we can we'll be able to speed that up, but that way you don't have to drive through the fields, track it up, run over crops. So mm-hmm. marking an A and a B point, we can completely map it out and spray them with the giant drones, which is really really cool. Really excited about that. So the drone is like an electric drone that holds gallons. batteries. We, yeah, yeah, it holds. They're holding just. They're getting. They can carry up to like a hundred pounds of liquid. That's pretty impressive. It's about about ten around ten gallons, and um, they go out and spray and. One guy can handle two to three of them. They just they go to a field and make a path, go, come back, top them off, put a battery in it, send it back out. and Kind of just keep cycling. They just through. keep cycling, going right on through. And like I said, you're not driving over the crop. I mean, this drone, you got to think about it, it sprays a, a path 30 feet wide. I mean, that's a pretty good, you know, 30 feet wide is pretty, pretty yeah. wide, pretty good spray. So, uh, yeah, we bought it last year, played around with it, and so this year we're going after it hardcore. We're going to start spraying for other people using the, using the drones. And then I was very fortunate to uh, meet some very, very cool people. Um, there's new technology out there. Um, a company is called Genifus, and they're working on getting a 510K patent right now. Um, but they're basically taking pigskin, pulling the collagen out, which is like if you get a cut or anything – um, collagen is what repairs itself. It's what you know allows you to heal, and so they're able to take the the collagen out of the pig skin, which is the closest thing to human. Like you got pig valves and all that type of stuff, um, and able to make a solution that they can actually inject. So instead of doing like um, skin grafting or other vis- different type of wound healing, this can actually go in and kind of almost like I don't know if it's the right term, almost like mimic your cells, but it actually adheres and start regrowing. But your skin type it'll match that and you don't get any any type of scarring with it but it'll match your skin tone to you know your tone's different mine so it's not like hey we inject it you're gonna have a different spit different you know stretch on your arm it'll be the exact same so for this is really i'm really excited about it's been absolutely an amazing team um the lady's been working on this sherry's just done a great job and andy and um i'm very very excited about like i said Third, fourth quarter, we should get our 510K. We're looking at purchasing or actually leasing a facility, getting the equipment ordered to be able to start mass producing this. Um, you know, with that, they're also going to be able to do kind of cartilage uh, with that to where they can actually replace and put it in the joints. It won't so like just, a knee and a shoulder. Like a knee that it won't dissipate. It'll stay there. Like, or if you have, like, trauma on your face, like a cheekbone, uh-huh. where they can actually come in or your ears and different things. So you just never know life, where life's going to take you, man. It's been a wild ride. I've been able to be a part of so many amazing things. And I've had a lot of great mentors. You know, that's kind of the – the cool thing, kind of like in the car world, you've had some mentors kind of help you out and, yeah. and get you going. And um, I've had quite a few people take me under the wing and, and give me the opportunity. And so a couple of these companies I've been a part of, uh, my give back, when I started up uh, CIE, there was a retired Army general who oversaw all 50 National Guards reported to him. This guy was in Patton's Army, very powerful, powerful guy. Mm-hmm. And I always asked him, hey, how can I ever repay you? He knew everybody had all the money. He said, hey, when somebody comes to you with a business idea, do what you did because CIE would not be here. I never would have met you. 
I never would have been able to help raise the money to get Genefist. All this stuff happened because at the point when I met him, I was ready to give up on trying to build an ethanol plant. I was getting no traction. Nobody would help me raise money. And he came in and helped me write a business plan. He gave me his people, and they would go to meetings, and he backed me. And I got to know senators and congressmen. So all the power, all the stuff I've been able to do in D.C. was all because of him. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the cause and effect, and the one thing he always told me is, look, Jay, the only way you can pay me back is by helping the next person that comes along with some crazy idea like you have. And so for me, that's kind of, you know, the last kind of 10 years, besides the farming and the racing fuel, and, and the cool thing going to racing events is a lot of people come up and say, hey, man, we, we, you do so much cool stuff. What do you think about if I try to do this? So it's really cool to be able to try to help encourage those people and give back, but it's really cool to be able to mentor others now also. You know, and, and when you start up a company, and I imagine, like, when you took the leap to, okay, jump out and do your own thing, it's, hey, let's do it. Then it's like, oh, shit, now what? Yeah. You know, and sometimes when you start up a company, it's about how much pain can you take, how much pain can you withstand until you can finally get there. You know, nothing is ever easy. All, all the companies, everything I've been a part of has been disruptors. It's been the, you can't do this, you can't do this, well, watch me. We, we were able to do that. And so that's been kind of the, the cool thing is being able to take other companies now and be able to help them to be able to launch them to get there where they're going. So uh, Gerald Moorhead up there in heaven, man, brother. It's, it's, uh, it's all, all the credit's given to you because I out. could not, I'm telling you right now, I would not be sitting in the seat here today if it had not been for him. None of this would have been happening. That's absolutely insane. And I, it's your businesses are so interesting to me because every one of them, it seems like a, such a far fetched thing because there's government organizations in your way. Like, you're not, you know, it's not like right. a t shirt business or like, you know, me on a YouTube channel. Like, there's no government organization pushing me back. But like, everything that you do, you're, you are, you have to go through a wall. Like, yeah. and you seem like you're the first person through this wall, which, First person always gets bloody, and you've just been kind of pushing you, you, through it. You take a beating and abuse, and that's why the whole EPA thing, the racers, don't get discouraged. You know, for the guys out there, don't get discouraged. Don't don't give up your dreams. I, I know it's scary right now with the shops and everything with EPA. Mm-hmm. Keep fighting. There is other opportunities. What we've got to do is band together. You know, the biggest thing is that the industry is kind of splintered right now. I think we've got to figure out a way to get one good, solid voice in there that represents and that's going to work hard for us. And, you know, with, with other individuals out there too, man, hey, without risk, you can't achieve success. There's not, hey, you know what? I've created companies and I failed. The Hemp Project, as a lot of you saw on my Instagram account, I grew a thousand acres of hemp and I had to destroy it all. It, I think 1320 did a video. I, I, I mean, it cost me millions of dollars that I did not have. I mean, you talk about almost going back to drinking just water and chicken noodle soup. I mean, when I was creating CIE, I literally was drinking water and chicken noodle soup. My friends, I went to a ghost man because everything I had, I put everything I had into that. I'd get to the point uh, when I was creating CIE, I couldn't even tell you what day it was. I, I mean, it was, I was immersed in it, learning. And the moment you think you're going to give up, like I can't take this any farther, the door would knock and someone would come in with an opportunity to give you help. And, and you start doing building blocks. And so for you guys out there wanting to create racing companies and, and build up your own shop, don't ever give up, man. It's painful. At the end of the day, there's only one person that can make yourself successful, and that's you. If you got that fire in your gut, if you've got that will and that intensity, and you have that faith in yourself, you're going to be successful. So a lot of people sometimes get in, they get that, that first thing of resistance, and then they pull back, and they're afraid. You know, I think what kind of separates me from others is I'll jump out of an airplane without a parachute because I know I'll land it. 
somehow. I'll find yeah. a way. I may not know how I'm going to do it, but on I'll the way find down. A, on the way down. I will figure out a way to land it. Mm-hmm. And so for, for those out there, you know, watching this podcast and, and thinking about it, don't be afraid to take a risk, man. And you know what? And there's nothing wrong with failure. The greatest, my greatest successes because it came about because of the failures, you know, I've learned so much from them. It's, you know, I speak to a lot of college kids. A lot of college kids will always ask, hey, man, how old are you? You made your first million, or what do you do with your millions, or something like that. And I'll say, you're going to be the first one to go broke. Because the small little thing, it's just like this in life. Money can't bring you about happiness. Small little things in life make you the happiest. Well, it's like that when you're creating and starting a business, too. You're not out here thinking, I'm going to become a multimillionaire, this and that. If you are, and you get lucky, and you hit it, and you're able to do that, you'll be broke in a heartbeat. The small little incremental steps that get you to where you're going those build that solid foundation to make you successful. So for you out there, like I said, going through rough times, don't give up. Believe in yourself. Yeah. You can make you can make it happen. It's all about the hustle and, and hard work. Well, even with your business, I, I mean, just knowing the timeline of everything, you kind of started it in kind of one of the worst economical times we've had in the U.S. in, like, recent history. Like, 2008 and nine was where yeah. – Seven. Kind of- I mean, actually, I started to ignite in 05, 06, developing the fuels. We started production in 07 because I already had alcohol coming in, yeah. testing. But the other interesting thing is I was a farmer, man. Can you imagine you trying to jump in and farm with no expertise knowledge? Yeah. I'm not a racer. I didn't have a race car. I mean, I remember going to racing events, and nobody knew what ethanol was. I'd go to dirt track. I'd go to tractor pulls. They would laugh at me, and not one person. I would drive all over the place. And not sell one drum of fuel. And I did that for years. Yeah. I mean, years. I mean, I lost millions of dollars on Ignite when nobody else would have because I knew I could get it to where we can make it a household name and a brand and be able to push stuff out there. But it's different. If you grew up racing or in engines, you had a, you had a way to get a product in. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't even. I mean, I knew a couple guys that raced dirt track cars. You ought to start from scratch and jump into something yeah. with, with, with nothing. And so that also, because of that, that's helped me in other industries I jump into because I've already had to create a market when there wasn't a market. You know, I, I wasn't going in competing with, you know, I was competing with race gas and methanol, but I created the ethanol racing fuel that everybody, you know, I created a class for ourselves that mm-hmm. wasn't out there. So that's crazy to think. Cause like I personally didn't even realize that because I got into racing in like 2017, 2016-ish, and like ethanol was already like what you put in your race car. It was already like a known thing. No, you you go back to 2006 to 2012, and I mean, what we sell in one week would have been in a year. And that took you. I mean, I lost ten years to ten years. You know, and like I said, I didn't have an engine. I mean, it was trying, and and then we got lucky with some guys. Formula Drift. Um, Michael Essa really helped me get going. Um, him and there was uh, Sam Hubinette. Um, There's a couple of the, the drifters that once I got them on board, the, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of crazy. I forgot about this also. We did a lot of the X Games stuff. Um, VP forces out, but like Tanner Faust, Pastrada, Block, um, Stefan Verdier got us in with those guys in the early years of the X Games. And then when we started to get traction, Yep. They came in, and a VP came in and sponsored them. We got booted out, and then we were banned. And it was like, dude, this is so cool. We're like, we're on the X Games. My cars are on the X Games. Then the next year, it's like, uh, nope, you guys are gone. And so it was like major setback. Because like, okay, there's – because you always need something to kind of help give you that break. 
and FD kind of gave us that break. And then, you know, God bless Taylor over Dallas performance. He was one of my biggest cheerleaders. You know, Taylor really did a lot at Dallas to help get us into the street racing world. Because, you know, I farm, I make booze, I understand how to make alcohol, I understand the grades and all this. But I couldn't answer questions. I'm not an engine guy. You guys are calling about air fuel ratios and all this. And I'm like, I, I don't know. Yeah, and he's the tuning guy. And side. he's the tuning guy. And so, you know, him and Gary Kubo, and then you've got another guy that took me under his wing was um, Harry Ruska, Precision, you know, who started up Precision Turbo and mm-hmm. HPL Oil now has got his new turbo. He was one of the guys that, you know, everybody kind of looked up to. So those guys kind of gave me credibility because I'm telling you what, man. I would literally go to, like, if they had streetcar takeover back there, not one car ran ethanol. When I, got, I mean, for the first six to eight years, not one of those cars would have been running ethanol. Guaranteed. I knew they didn't. That's insane to me because I... Not one Wave Runner ran ethanol. We were ethanol. there yesterday. Not it? one jet ski ran ethanol. I had um, uh, Carson Brummett, who builds the fastest boat engines like the for the shootouts, like at uh, Lake of the Ozarks and all of that. Carson got me into the boating world, and we've had hundreds of boats since. But he, he was one of the other guys uh, who was amazing who brought me in, and we were gaining 500, 600 horsepower per engine. So boats were gaining 30, yeah. 30 mile per hour in a 50 foot, you know, 40, the 45 to 50 foot boat. That's a lot of that's a lot of mile an hour to gain just based off of fuel change. And you would think that like lakes and stuff that don't allow gas engines would love ethanol, right? Because a lot of them don't like let gas engines in because they don't want that oil slick correct look. And, and ethanol is biodegradable 90 percent of my fuel is 100 biodegradable you get some drunk fish and turtles mm-hmm. you know if it leaks out so it like i said when you when you stop and actually look at what we've done it's one thing i don't think people understand the struggle because kind of the one perceptions i get you know even yesterday i had a couple people come up like why haven't you grown why aren't you way bigger than what you are well you ought to see where we came from and the struggle i had to go through yeah I mean, it was painstaking. I mean, it was, I would farm through the week. I would sell fuel. I'd go to the shop from 10 o'clock to 2 a.m., load out drums, leave the door open, go farm, come back. I would leave on a Thursday, come home on a Sunday, and not sell any fuel. Like, I would go to events. I mean, I literally, I literally, for the first two years, would go weeks without selling a drum of fuel. But I would go to four, three to four. I'd, I'd hit up an event on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday just to learn more and talk to people. Yeah, and then when we get started to get out. there, you know, a lot of guys started coming up and said, you know, one thing is you never really pushed your fuel on us. Like, I'd go up talk to people. What are you running? Hey, have you ever tried ethanol? No. Okay, well, well they kept seeing me. Well, what's in the back of your truck? You know, but I didn't force it on people. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like the road we take. And even a lot of my drifters, like, you know. Hey guys, I never force it on. They said, "Hey, when you're ready, I'll come hang out. I'm here to drink your, I'm here to drink your beer, eat your food, and have some fun with you, man. Yeah. When you're ready to try my fuel, you'll call me. You know where I'm at. And so, um, building those relationships. But you know, try to imagine jumping into something and not having a not having a clue, and it's literally having to grind and fight your way the whole way. Yeah, I mean, you've you've been the father of ethanol into racing, and I feel like. Ignite doesn't get the credit it deserves for that. Yeah. And pump gas really doesn't really have any place on a racetrack anymore. If, like, people that... When I see somebody that's like, oh, I'm on pump E85, Mm -hmm. I'm like, why? Right. Why would you do that to yourself? Yep. Go get it from a barrel. Yeah. (laughs) The price isn't really really worth it. Right. To not. Yeah, and we gain so much more, and it's like you're just playing Russian roulette with pump E85. You don't know... 
what you're going to get and when it's going to blow. And, you know, as we're going down the line here in the next few years, Pumpy 85, like I said before, it's going away anyways. Yeah. It was a great field. Don't get me wrong out there. I'm not now, – now it's kind of a crap field. But when we originally got started and we were putting E85 pumps, you know, I put hundreds of pumps in E85. I was down in the holes. I was looking at – you know, what type of piping was in there? Was it uh, fiberglass? Do we need to put bladders in? All that type of stuff. And gas stations. And getting grants and putting in, I mean, working with the uh, the pump manufacturers to make sure we could use that, the right materials. So, I mean, it's been a long, hard. And, and to watch it, you know, to watch the 85 peak, and we were doing so good growing, and then to watch what happened, it's, it's disheartening, actually. Yeah. Because it's such a great fuel. Who and, do you and, point that at? Who do you who do you point at for like? Because it didn't just. Naturally I really happen. think it's the ethanol industry not knowing what they're doing. They don't understand. You know, the the, the problem is, and it's it's the industry. I mean, they you didn't don't point at OEM or no. I, I don't believe it's the OEMs because the OEMs started to adjust because they want octane. They don't want every car out here today. Every OEM is complaining about how bad our fuel is getting. It's getting harder for them to make better mileage cars with less emissions if you got a dirtier fuel. Mm-hmm. They want octane. But what they're all being told is, well, you need something. Everybody's so concerned about carbon footprint. I don't believe in all that hocus-pocus anyways, the whole carbon thing. Yeah. but Well, you, you take know, it out of the air already. Yeah, we already take it out of the air. And then people say, well, ethanol's a dirtier fuel because you have to farm to be able to make it. And that's, you know, you're, you're ripping up the ground and releasing carbon out. There's so many other benefits, like I said, on the byproduct side that more than make up for that. But that's, yeah. you know, the CO2, CO2, like I told you, that story is never told to people. I mean, literally, the United States economy, the meat processors shut down because they had no CO2 for their chillers. That story was never told in the media. Yeah, they never were, heard of it. You know, there was, hey, well, we got meat packing plants and the employees got COVID, yes. But they wouldn't have had COVID the plants were shutting down because they had no CO2 in the first place. Mm-hmm. I mean, you heard about gas stations and people going in to get pop, and they had no pop because they had no CO2. Like oh, I said, wow. no one ever put two and two together. That came because of ethanol. Yeah, and then, well, and then your hemp side of things, that's kind of like a whole other thing. Like, there's yep. a billion things you can do with there's hemp. There's a billion. We're going to come back to The timing on that was off, and uh, I pushed really hard. And I'll come back to it. In a year or two, I think the timing is going to turn back around to be able to go after that because... Hemp's got a couple of amazing things. It's got a natural um, antimicrobial, so bacteria. So for like you having a race suit, you could actually have a race suit that's breathable. The bacteria won't grow in, but also is a natural fire retardant that will not burn. You can make drywall out of it and put a blowtorch on it and leave it there for an hour, and it won't, it'll just smolder, and when you pull the blowtorch away, it'll stop. You can make a composite. Like you're out here in beautiful, sunny Florida with boats. What's your biggest fear on a boat? Fire. You can actually make an epoxy using hemp that will not burn. So all of these benefits They're, just get completely carbon overlooked. Carbon fiber, eth- um, sorry about eth- ethanol, is just strong as for, um, hemp fiber is just as strong as carbon fiber, and you're talking three to four bucks a pound versus a couple hundred bucks a pound. Won't burn. Won't burn. So you could actually think what that could do as far as making materials for the racing, just in components. 
and you make the epoxy out of it as well. So Cause like, because carbon fiber is kind of like that, right? It's like layered and then like epoxy right. kind or whatever. They so there's do. so many opportunities that we can do that we can go after, like insulation of it absorbing heat and everything else. Because that's one of the things we could do is make like um, you know better. What's what's the things that go around the turbos like the skirt or oh, the blanket? Yeah, blanket. Yep. Um, you can make that absorb the that absorb all the heat, but it never catch on fire, never burn. So all of this stuff. And especially because fiberglass is, like, my least favorite thing ever. Right. You touch fiberglass, like, you go to wrap a header, <laughs> and it's all over your yeah. arms, your rash. Yep. It's, like, the worst thing ever. Yeah. So we'll come back to that. I haven't given up on that. I mean, I, I took it. I, I took a major beating. Uh, I lost five years of my life on that one. <laughs> but I thought I was having a heart attack. It was crazy because we had shift sector coming in town. My uh, lake house got hit by a tornado. And then all of a sudden I found out my biggest investor – dumped us at the very last moment and tried to do what I was doing. They actually contacted the company I was working with that uh, we had all the money raised sitting in escrow and they pulled theirs out at the last moment and thought I'd give up. Well, I got a five-year non-compete with them. And then they called, as soon as I returned everybody's money, they called the company I was working with and said, hey, we got all the money ourselves, we'll do it. Because I gave them, when you do due diligence, you give them a plan of who who did you buy the seed from? Who are you going to sell it to? What equipment are you going to buy? How are you going to grow it? I had to provide all that information over to him because it's part of due diligence when you do, when you look at doing an investment. Yeah. Well, they they tried themselves to do it and couldn't figure out how to do it, and then all of a sudden they're like, "Oh, you just gave us the holy grail of how to do this." Well, we don't need you. Screw you. So that was an intense uh, that driving through the uh, the hemp field. That was some much needed stress relief because that was me literally like thinking I'm going to have a mental breakdown. Mm-hmm. That week, because everybody's coming in town to do a racing event, you're trying to be happy, and all the all you really want to do is go lock yourself in a room and hide. And you destroyed X amount of hemp, a thousand acres of hemp. It took us 37 days to mow it down. We went through 40 to 50 blades. Gearboxes cost 5,500 dollars. We went through like eight of those. We could only mow it about a mile and a half. A mi- I mean, literally a mile and a half an hour. Um, because it was so thick. It, I mean, it ruined the metal blades. That stuff is so tense. So we'd have to. We'd literally mow like around a circle, round down and back, then have to blow out the radiator because of the pollen. Thirty-seven days of mow. It, we all got sick after two to three days because you're smelling so much hemp and pollen. I mean, if yeah. I smoked, I don't smoke weed, but oh my god, it was the most nauseating. I think the biggest Cheech and Chong person could have went and gotten the tractor, and after two hours, they'd been like, "I'm tapping out." Yeah, this stinks so bad, I can't even take it anymore. So it's that much stronger than corn, even just. Trying to mow it down. Trying to mow it down was impossible. I bought two brand new mowers and we ruined them. And we had a third. We had a rotation going because we'd rebuild one. Every other day we'd pull a new one in rebuilding them mm-hmm. because we were wearing them out because the stuff is that sturdy. And, you know, a thousand acres and you're cutting it at 15 feet wide at a mile and a half. I mean, we were only doing like 10 to 15 acres, I mean, a day. And when you say mower you're not talking about a dixie chopper ride talking a big winged mower like you see on the highway interstate behind a tractor and the stuff is 10 to 12 feet tall so you can't see where you're going it's sitting you're sitting in the tractor and still two to three feet above you does that stuff just grow incredibly well yes you just throw the seeds down stuff, and it's like versus marijuana and cbd that looks like a christmas tree like they talk all if you ever see anything on on hemp and and marijuana, they want it bushy because mm-hmm. it, you know, the more it goes out, the more leaves, more buds, all that. Well, when you grow fiber, it's completely different. I want it thick. You want it thick like um, golf course grass because hemp is extremely a competitive plant. So you plant it really thick 
And so that's why I got so tall. It races towards the sunlight. Oh. So versus being like, you know, CBD, marijuana, you go look, and they literally, their stalks down the bottom are thick. This thing's about, about like your pinky, but 14 feet tall. Huh. So it's almost like bamboo Correct. level of yes. like Yeah, and invasive. it grows like literally in one day, and you go to bed and wake up the next morning, and it grew like four inches overnight. I mean, it just goes. So very bamboo-like. It just starts going insane, but you grow it thick, and like I said, it's competitive, and it doesn't even look like marijuana until because only the top part's got leaves. Mm-hmm. So as it grows, it drops leaves down below, fall off, so you don't even really realize it. But it was funny because we grew it next to a highway. We had uh, – mile and a half of hemp growing right off one of the busiest highways in Indiana. And it smelled like weed for two to three miles. And people would drive through and couldn't figure out where it was at because yeah. it didn't look like what they pictured. So it's dropping all those leaves. In- but it's growing up. So you only have yeah. like three or four big leaves up top. But so when you drive by, you don't really, it really, it's not what you, you drive by like, what is that? But it doesn't look like marijuana or, you know, it's not what you picture in your head. Well, it's, so it's kind of making funny. its own fertilizer, too, by dropping right. leaves like that. Yeah, yeah, it does that, and then also uses, like, a third of the water. So, like, for drought, it's more efficient. also uses less fertilizer. And on the hemp side, there's some really cool things. So we, we talked a little bit about what you could do with the fiber. So on the inside of the herd, so it's almost like a woody substance, about like what, what your table is here. And that herd can be used for a lot of different products also. So you got the fiber on the outside, which is about 25% of the plant, 75% of the plants of the herd, which can be used for like animal bedding. You can actually be used in plastics. You can actually, so like your plastic uh, water bottle, 60% of that can be made out of hemp. That would actually, if you threw it away, within a year it would start actually decomposing in a landfill. So all of these benefits, and we don't get it. We don't get it, but we'll come back to it. I mean, yeah. it's 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 the, it's all about timing. The timing wasn't right, and um, but there's so much government money out there put into other things. And right, this it, seems like one that could use a lot of government right. Well, money. the government's really good at two things. The government's really good at spending money on what they don't need and not mm-hmm. spending money on what they need. And the government's bipolar. Yeah. Well, and you deal with every government. And I deal with every government. I mean, ATF, FBI, I mean, you name it all, FDA, DOE. Yeah. Every one of your businesses. you got a giant, massive file. Yeah. <laughs> they know me quite well. So to touch on government, would you run for a SEMA position? Would Have you thought about, like, maybe I should be, you know, more involved in this to get it going? Or is it going to drag you down more? I've tried to do that. I tried to put together a group. And like we kind of talked about, my ideas of how we form a consortium, a group, and then we go out and do testing. The problem is I don't have enough time. I mean, I'm so busy with launching other companies and farming. I mean, farming is a full-time job in itself. So when you throw everything in, I can tell you how to go about doing it. I, I just don't have the time because I've got the same thing. I've been asked to run for office back home. Uh I'd love to. It'd be great. I've got a lot of expertise and knowledge and and a good name and a background in it. But I just, it's one of those things I just don't have the time right now. I wish I could, but you know, to be able to do it, I can offer advice to, Hey guys, think about this. You know, here, here's, this as an idea, but to be able to devote time to, I just don't have it right now. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate. They almost need you as like a consultant kind of on not, I mean, not exactly on payroll, I guess, but like kind of, because they're going to ask you I for mean, money. I mean, I've been giving them ideas, and they don't they don't want it. They don't care. They, you know, like I said, it's the, if the biggest thing is if they fix the problem, what are they going to do next? How are they going to get more money? Yeah. That's, it, it, it's, more, it's like the government. It's, bureau, it's all bureaucracy. Yeah, there's a lot of that that 
gets talked about in the um, pharmaceutical world if they fix the problem where they're going to get their money from. Yeah, and so I, I don't think that they want to, I honestly. And, and they're representing both sides. You know, that's the other thing is, you know, they're representing the new clean technology, the battery. Mm-hmm. The, you know, they can't they can't make a decision because they're getting money on both both ends of it. Yeah. Well, a lot so of the, the best thing is just kind of well, we're trying, but it's not really going, and so mm-hmm. you know they they kind of play that you know let's not make a decision. We we don't want to piss both sides off, so we'll just kind of make a half ass attempt. Yeah, and then I like to look at what OEM is doing with when it comes to PRI and SEMA, and they've kind of stepped away from it, right. which worries me a little because you know OEM kind of needs to kind of needs to push for us to be able to modify their cars, or else they're not going to sell as many cars. Correct. People aren't going to buy that new Mustang. Right, as much if you can't mod it up. If you can't modify it. Right. So it, it kind of gets a little tough there, too, because as a consumer, I want to see Ford, Chevy, Dodge pushing against the EPA. So we've been able, in the ethanol industry, we know for a fact that the EPA has used flawed data in their emissions testing of, of making ethanol look worse. Mm-hmm. Um, back when they were actually doing testing on gas stations and fuel blends, so if... if if you've got your own gas station and you're pumping out fuel to 100, 150 stations, the government doesn't come out and pull a sample from you. You submit a certification fuel in. Well, the ethanol industry, we don't own gas stations. Mm-hmm. So they were sending, if you're a gas station, you get to blend. So you make your own 87 or 89, 91. That doesn't have to be what's at the pump. It's a cert fuel. So you send off whatever so you, you send think off is best. whatever you think's best. Well, then at the time, you know, right now forty percent of the ethanol industry is owned by the oil companies. That's why it, it's kind of a weird partnership. They need us. They just are going to buy it all out. You know, it drops, they'll buy it out. But what they're doing is taking dirtier fuel, blending the ethanol to get your ninety one, ninety three, and then it's all of a sudden coming back saying, "Well, ethanol's making your emissions worse." So, um, the Clean Air Initiative that the Vandergrins and ICM did, they went out to a thousand retail outlets, pulled, used the exact same people the EPA used, pulled like a thousand gas station samples and had analysis done on them. And guess what? It was a whole completely different story. We actually have an email from the EPA stating that they know that the data and the numbers is flawed. The, the, what they're using to come up with the emissions on ethanol is not right. Yeah. But they don't care. There is actually an email stating hey, what we're doing is wrong, but we don't give a shit. We're going to keep telling everybody you're worse and you're bad, and we don't care. Well, Ford GM and Chrysler all got together. They did some things. They actually were pushing some of the stuff, and the EPA threatened them, and they backed down. You know, huh. that's how strong they are. So when you said the OEMs, the OEMs are afraid because all the EPA has got to say is, how many factories do you have? All we got to do, we can find a reason any one of your facilities. We can go in there. We'll find something. Yeah. It's like when the RS knocks on your door. Everything's up to They can always find something. Yeah. Somewhere something was messed up. One little thing's off a dollar here. Yep. So the EPA has threatened the OEMs. We know for a fact that has happened. And they backed off. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's where does it go from there? You're exactly right. Something's kind of up. But they also, they don't know what to do because... I'm working on a new project, and I can't go into details on it. So I've been able to learn a lot more about our power grid and everything else. And the one thing we know out there is, even out here where you live, Cooper, if half these houses put electric cars in, the grid here, would it cannot handle it. Your house is not built, designed. It doesn't have the capability to handle 
putting in an electric system. And so everybody's freaked out on, A, we're going to get enough power. What are we going to do? But then you got the OEMs who are throwing a ton of money saying government's threatening them. So they're saying, hey, we got to pump out all these electric cars, but the infrastructure will never even come close to being there to be able to power them. I mean, you look at going down the road and going to the gas station, if it takes you 20 to 50 minutes, to even if it takes you 10 minutes, what's it going to look like with people waiting on the amount of power you need to be able to generate, to be able to, to do this? It's not even feasible. What about all the people who live in apartment complexes or, or buildings or you go somewhere to a hotel and you got a you got 100 cars sitting in the parking lot, how are you going to charge 100 cars? Yeah. Yeah, this whole thing is, doesn't make sense, but yet the OEMs are being forced to have to do this. It's really interesting when you look at the car world because, you know, one of the first people really come out doing the electric thing was like Toyota, Honda. But they've never been the ones coming out saying, hey, we're going to do 100% electric cars. All of a sudden you got, you know, Chrysler, you got GM, and you got Ford. Oh, hey, we're going to complete, you know, by 2030, we're going to do 100% complete electric. You don't hear that with Toyota and Honda. No. They're, they're hybrid. They're There's- hybrid, and they know, hey, this is not realistic. And so I think... One of the reasons that the OEMs may have stepped away from SEMA is, like, they know they're, they're going to take it in the shorts. I mean, they're they're gambling on the government, and the government can flip. You know, one election can flip, and all of a sudden the whole battery thing's right back to going the other way. And, and you know, the last election, there was a gentleman, and I can't mention his name, that was the head of one of the heads of Dodge Performance who developed the, uh, the Hellcat, the Demon, that platform, the engines. He literally showed up to work on a Tuesday, and his key fob didn't work. There was no email, no, it was like, what the hell, calls his boss, say, we shut down Dosh Performance, all that money went to electric. Yep. Yeah, and then a few months later, they unveil their new electric demon. Yep, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's a scary time even in the automotive, because what's going to happen with GM threatening to go, you know, do away with their combustion engines? What's that going to do for the LS platform? Yeah. Well, even Dodge has been buying credits. I think most people don't realize they have to buy credits from other companies to make their big V8s. Correct. So like a well, it all comes down like, to cafe standards, yep. Yeah, they're buying from Tesla to make. Correct. And it's weird even you see cars like the Ford Mustang becoming an EV as well. Right. And you wonder if there's just legality behind that right. more than there is mm-hmm. brand recognition behind it. Right. And it's all kind of a weird shadiness that <laughs> us in the consumer, because I am consumer as it gets like i'm not yeah i don't talk to anybody at oem i doubt they care to hear from me Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i know all the tuners though for oem and they i know lund well and i've talked to him a few times about what he's went through and well where's pri backing him where's pi helping him pri (laughs) should help him ford should help him i would hope they're all backing off Good luck. Nice knowing you. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and that's why I'm like, who who would it take to champion for us to kind of push back through? Like, where where could we well, even fight that? So, John Deere is getting that happening right now. I don't know if you've seen on the news down here in Florida, but in several states, we can't work on our farm equipment. Yeah. We're right locked out. Yep. So, there's now passing legislation to be able to do that. Well, that's a major OEM getting pushed back. So, like I said, the biggest thing is is it's going to be on being vocal. It's yeah. going to be the racing community saying, hey, we don't like this. This doesn't make sense. You're hurting us. But, you know, do they really care? I mean, it's everything's profit-driven about CEOs and, and all this. You know, they don't really care about the, the consumer. Yeah. 
you and know. then right to repair is a big topic. Exactly. And I think that one gets really overlooked in the tech world and in every kind of world because we live in such a disposable technology like this phone. Right. If it breaks, it's outdated. Right. It doesn't even matter if you want to fix it. And in the car world, if you don't have the right to repair your car, it's not like my $50,000 truck isn't just outdated if it broke. Right. Like, I need to fix that thing. Right. And... The new ones seem to be breaking a lot more mm-hmm. with emission standards. Oh, especially with all the deaf stuff. I mean... It's all emission stuff that fails. It's all emission stuff, and not only that, what doesn't make sense is, okay, you want us, you want us to put deaf in our farm equipment, you want us to put deaf in you know, your trucks, and they're getting worse mileage. So now you're burning more diesel fuel, which is supposedly dirtier, which we don't want, to go the same distance. It, it, it's kind of confusing. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah. And have you looked into making the deaf fluid? Because it seems like that's just a cash cow. No pun intended on <laughs> well, the Well, urea, the, the amount of money, the nitrogen that they're putting in with it. I mean, it's basically water and urea is what they're putting into. Mm-hmm. But but you can't get your hands on urea. The Kind of an interesting thing that all your deaf fluid, in the United States, we don't make fertilizer anymore. All of our fertilizer comes from Russia and Ukraine and China. Yeah, it's a weird, weird deal. So kind of a weird thing that just happened, too, is deaf prices are going up because they can't get the urea over here to be able to make it mm-hmm. because that all comes from China. So I don't know. I, I, eventually, I think they got to get away from deaf. Uh, yeah. I mean, right now, Cummins, uh, there's some people have came out with diesel motors that don't even, that their tier motors are below, that they don't even have to use deaf on them, but they haven't released them yet. They, they're clean enough already to do that but they haven't released the data out to the public and then really pushed it yet yeah i think um if we run into that where def is so expensive truck drivers can't even right operate their vehicles will there be an initiative of like okay we'll plug in we'll turn off def it's it'll be legalized to to turn it off because that's really what it is it's an on and off switch correct you could just plug into a truck and turn it off Right. And people have been fined millions of dollars for that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they actually only fined the guys that were turning it off, not the people that gave you the ability to turn it right. off. Right, and it's the whole tobacco thing. Yeah. You know, it's the whole marijuana thing. I mean, there's precedents out here for what they're doing to be able to, to ram it back down their throats. But, but you know, it's when I've talked to, like, J.H.'s attorney and I talked to Brent PFI, uh, you know, him and about his attorney situation, I, I brought these up. It's like, man, have you ever... Did you ever bring up, hey, this it's it's federal legal, but this is happening, mm-hmm. and they're not doing anything about it? So I think you got a precedent in court. And as last I checked, I don't think Brett, I don't I, Brent, I don't think his has been settled yet. I don't believe. I think he's still out there floating around right now with this thing. And how the EPA acts is they what? So what they're doing is you got a couple options. One, you pay the fine, we shut you down. B, we take you to we, we go to court. We fight you. If you lose, you pay the fine and go to jail. Um, or th- the third one is we'll just bleed you death. So what the EPA, what the government will do is, is like what they're doing to Brent is, okay, we may not win the court case, but here's the deal. We're not going to take you to jail. You have to, you're supposed to stop operations. You can't work anymore. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to bleed you. We'll, we'll take this thing out two to three years in court to where you're now out of business and we just walk away and, and give up. Yes, and so that's almost like what they're doing to him is they're actually pushing this thing because the can keeps get they keep asking for more documents this and that and he's like dude when it wins enough's enough you know they're basically bleeding him to death 
And that's what they do. So I guess I would wonder, like, where where is it going to court? Like, is it local court? Is it supreme? Like, it does it? Yeah, well, that do I don't you climb know. up the ladder. Like, right? You know, can you get a jury of your peers? <laughs> well, it depends on how much money. I mean, you can take it up there. You know, I've, you know, when, when you got many businesses, you've been you get sued for most crazy things. I've been there before, but it's you know, but it's not cheap. You know, it's yeah. kind of like Brent said, man. It's like every month there's a bill and there's a bill. So, okay, well, do you want to take to a higher court? You may have to hire a better attorney, and then you're you know you're starting back from scratch all over yeah. again. I I've often that's thought, where I think Seam and Perai, if they really cared about it, yeah, they ought to be flipping the bill, saying, "Hey, we'll represent you. We'll bring in one of our attorneys to help represent you." Mm-hmm. Why are they not they they use these guys to make all this money off of them? Why have they not provided any action, Lund? Why have they not done anything to help Lund and say, hey, you know what? We'll provide attorneys to go out and help you fight this. That would be the first thing they should have done. One of my thoughts, and I, I hate to like say it like this, but we almost need like a big name in the car community to get like really hit and maybe even end up in a cell for like a month or two. Right. I, it sucks to say, but right. like that's like the accelerant. Because like right now it's you, so slow moving. You first, first person? I mean, hey, if it, if it takes it, though, like, unfortunately, like, we need, like, unfortunately, you need an accelerant on some things. And if it's just slow moving, it'll be here before you know it. But if it all happens at once, I almost feel well, like we could fight it better. But if you think right now, people people forget stuff. Look at all the stuff. Food's going up. Diesel's going up. Fuel's mm-hmm. going up. This was a hot button issue in the racing when it hit, but now it's pretty, I mean, everybody still chats about it, but is there really that fire out there anymore? Not really. Yeah. Burns out. It's burned out. Yeah. And that's what, that's what I worry about. The little fires can keep starting and then suddenly it's all gone. You take an inch by inch. Right. And that's the problem I think with the industry right now. No one, like you said, no one's really grabbed the bull by the horns and said, Hey, let's do it. Exactly. And like, if somebody, really big got kind of caught up in it and could like really pool resources together. Yeah. I think that would that would help. And unfortunately SEMA should be the one. Well another thing to kind of think about is you've got certain companies out there that have the abilities to be able to do things that are very influential on the SEMA board. Mm -hmm. This isn't a bad thing for them to happen. Clears the field. Oh, so like these big companies that have a lot of money invested into a lot of businesses can easily lobby for themselves. Mm-hmm. But then when the little guy gets hit, exactly, they brush it under the rug a little bit. Well, not I'm not just saying that, but some of the bigger companies have the opportunity to go out and get CARB certified, where you may not. Mm-hmm. They're already going out and getting every, every part's CARB certified, but uh, hey, if... Half the industry gets wiped out, and there's only one person still standing. Yeah. So you got to look at it that way, too. Yeah, and then they're also all fighting. So that's one of the reasons why you're not hearing some of the bigger names come out is because sense. if you clean clean house, hey, do you want 30 competitors or maybe only four of us? Well, the four of us can eat mighty well if we take over what, what everybody else was cooking. Yeah, and when one person's fighting with legal battles, you can easily be like, hey, here's your out. I'll buy it from you for X amount. Yeah. And then once you're under the conglomerate, it's really easy to uh, push away regulations. I, I know that's happened because I've had a couple of those people reach out to me. Yeah. And say, we know what you're trying to do, what you're, you know, because you, I really am a thorn in the side of SEMA and PRI. Because mm-hmm. I, like I said, I've, I had the experience. I know how to, I know how to fix the problem in DC. I know what they can do to fix it. 
and I've called them out, and I've and I've brought up this to some certain companies, and I've gotten the no, we we kind of disagree with you. <laughs> well, <there's laughs> then why do you disagree with me? Then it's like, oh, I know now. I know why, you know, hey, just leave CMMPR alone because it's going to hurt your business. If you keep pushing on this, there's going to be a repercussion, which I don't care. I mean, yeah. everybody's trying to take me out. So go ahead and hit me if you want. Next person, I'll take the punch and get back up again. you got enough other stuff going on. It, but but I, when that kind of came about, I'm like, okay, well, this kind of makes a little bit of sense. Yeah, and I know a certain big company that just went public recently that just got a new CEO. I'm sure you saw the news on that one, yeah. too. And they've been taking in companies left and right. Right. And now they have, I believe, a non-car guy CEO, which is a little disheartening, right. a little worrying on, Very, my, yep. on my end of things. So be curious to see how that goes. Mm-hmm. I think now they're a little more concerned about stock prices than they used to be. Yep. Because they never had stock prices before. Correct. And it's weird. For, Whole world changes when you do an IPO. Yeah, exactly. Yep. I don't know. I don't know how this is going to go. Where, where do you see the, the car world in the next few years here it's interesting i i i really think the foreign car companies are going to come in and eat the lunch of the domestics because i think the you know the one thing ford did come out you know gm came out originally that all their pickups are going to be electric ford came out and said we love our gas guzzlers and we're then all of a sudden gm came out said you know what we're going to keep our engine our our big engines um it's going to be interesting. You know, in the agriculture world, I'm not really impressed with all the touchscreen stuff because guess what? I've had it for 20 years. Yeah. You know, a Tesla, our, our big expensive John Deere's are giant Teslas. They've been driving themselves, doing all this stuff. Click a button, A and B and mapping where they can turn on. They can turn by themselves. They can lift equipment up. They can do all that. So as far as technology and all that and cars, I, I don't see a lot more coming about. Um, but... The one thing is the government is in the business of trying to figure out a way for us to drive less. They want less cars on the road, less emissions, yeah. less tires, less all, less everything. So for me, where do we go from here? To me, it's it's just government. Government getting in the way of everything. You know, the government making it impossible for the auto industry to do what needs to be done the proper way. You know, the government's going to force the big boys to do things that I got my gut. No, nah, it's not even a gut. I know because I know some people. Um, the government's already, you know, they're already doing everything they can to uh, please the government to sidestep EPA and other issues. Yeah. So it, that's scary. Get, let the, you know, let the consumer make the decision. You know, the ethanol industry, they always, we never got the chance to, you know, the fuel was always forced on people. We never gave the people the option. Do you want ethanol or not? Do yes or no on the pump. That's all we ever ask. Give us the opportunity. If you put it in, you give it our fuel mileage. That, that never happened. Well, I the think the capitalistic same, capitalistic. Well, I think that's going to be the same thing. It's going to really hurt the the automotive industry. It's not going to be. Are you going to get a choice? It's going to be a. This is what you have to do, whether you like it or not. Well, they and we'll see own. if they're willing. To, we'll see if they're willing to buck them, or if they play play the game, or if they don't. Yeah, and they kind of own GM. They own GM. Yeah, Ford kind of has their own ownership, but GM and Dodge are still kind of indebted. To They're them. indebted majorly. They can't really go against what... And, and as being somebody, you know, I've traveled all over the world. I've been to Argentina, Chile, Brazil, Holland. I mean, I can't remember how many countries I've been to. Very few countries have the infrastructure to do electric anyways. Mm-hmm. In the United States, maybe Japan, you go to Europe. and It's really interesting. I don't know if you've ever been to Europe. I mean, no. their infrastructure is really old, the power, all that. So, really, 
for a car company to say, hey, we're going to go all electric, we're going to do all this, there's only a handful of places around the whole world that could adapt, that could actually make that happen. Yeah. And we, I mean, we'd be the closest thing power-wise, but we're not even close to being the reality of where that needs to be. No, our grid is fragile from what it's I've seen It's fragile already. I mean, it's already breaking. And, I mean, there was stuff online today about they're, you know, predicting even in Florida and south of all the construction, everybody moving down here, the grid in Florida can't handle what's happening now. Mm-hmm. Especially if you look out around where you live here and where the track is and all the expansion, the, the, the juice isn't here to handle that. No, not at all. And so... You know, you look at all that stuff. I don't know. It's going to be an interesting couple of years, but we just need people to get more vocal. You know, the biggest thing is racers, you know, letters were sent. Well, email this letter to your congressman. They don't read that stuff. They don't care. Making a phone call. Get active in politics. Go see your congressman. Actually, go knock on the door. Go to their office. Every congressman has two to three offices in their district. Your senators have three or four through the state. Don't just write a letter, show up, make a phone call. They'll actually answer. If you if they get five calls on one topic, they have to actually look into it. Hmm. It's kind of like kind of a rule. Yeah. So to me, how do we go about changing this and, and doing things? The car community has got to stand up, get better together, get on the same page. And they're, you know, in certain things like doing, deleting, you know, taking out cats Hey, there are there are some good players or some bad players. You know, is there the perfect answer? No. But is there some give and take? There may have to be a little bit of give and take to keep what we love. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one because I'm I'm always on the uh don't give an inch. Oh, I'm mindset. on the don't give an inch, but, but sometimes I what you but mean. if you can get them to say, Okay, we'll back down, all right, well we'll stop deleting cats. Yeah. Is that is that nego- you know, what is there to negotiate? Yeah. You don't want to negotiate because if you go to negotiate, usually when you once you give up once, you're going to give up two to three more times. But if your answer is, is it better to live with two arms, one arm, or cut off both arms, what do you do? Sometimes we all have to make a little bit of a sacrifice for the better. So yeah, that's a it's an unfortunate thing to think about because you feel like when you live in a country that promotes freedom, freedom. you get to um, kind of do it the way you want. But obviously, I'm not you know, freedom enough where it's like, I can, co- I can pollute that lake. Right. You know, like there's the boundaries right. of it. You know, right. It's not just yeah. endless. Yep. And so I think that's kind of, where, where do you draw that line? How do you get people on the same page? It's never going to happen. Never. Nobody's ever going to be hundred percent agreement, but there's gotta be, you know, with social media being such a great, I mean, the, the tool that you have, you know, I, I never, you know, Instagram started in what? 12, 13, yeah. you know, I, I didn't have, I don't have YouTube. I'm, I'm not, if I had that tool, I mean, I can't imagine if I had half the knowledge you've got and that stuff where I could be with a lot of the stuff that I do. But I think the coolest thing is you can get information and data out there so much quicker and so much faster. It's how do we really use the social media to start changing perception? Well, that's why. And that's what you're trying that's to That's what do. I'm trying to do here. Yeah. I'm trying to bring on people like you that have this knowledge that I can but I, but I think out. a lot of the people are afraid to make somebody mad. So rather than, you know, I think a lot of guys will say, hey, yeah, I'd like to say something. Well, you can't say I don't want to make PR. I don't, or I don't make somebody else mad. Or I might make a couple of viewers mad if they disagree with me. There's nothing wrong with that. They're, disagreements no are what this it. country was made about, yeah. you know. And so, but I think it, you're right. It's going to take somebody with a big name or a group. But I really think, the, how do we get the performance world to where it needs to be in fighting the EPA? we got to partner with other people fighting the EPA. Mm-hmm. Not big enough to do it by ourselves. 
yeah, the racing community is small enough to fail. Yep. And the farming community is not. And a lot of your farmers race. A lot of your farmers like to work on their mm -hmm. own stuff. So if there was a perfect partnership, there you go. Yeah, so would you see anybody else that could join into that partnership? So farmers, racers? I think the NFIB, National Federation of Independent Business, is really good. So your chamber of commerce are usually focused on your bigger businesses. Your NFIB is your mom and pop. Okay. Well, most of your regulations, who they really hurt, you know, chamber doesn't care about small business. They want to crush you anyways. They, they care about the fortune 500, their big people. NFIB cares about your smaller, you know, you, Hey, I, I have an automotive repair shop. I have this and that. So I think it's very important to be able to get them because a lot of the people that are even in the, you know, in small companies, the EPA is going after, they don't have the luxury of having attorneys and all the stuff the big boys got. That's where the NFIB comes really in national federation of independent business. That's where they really come in and kind of take that slack up to help the small guy like you and me yeah. to give us that voice to be able to help us. So I would picture, you know, really working with the ag industry, like Farm Bureau. I would, you know, they have a massive voice out in D.C., the NFIB, uh, the ethanol industry. We could try again, um, you know, getting some people in the racing industry together. But I think that's where I, I think that's a good enough start of a group and enough money and enough people to be able to do it. Yeah, have you seen um, Turn Fourteen has been doing some good? Uh, they've been fighting a little bit different than SEMA and PRI, and I wonder about that if there's this divide. Like you know, if I went out and started my own thing trying to fight in a different way, if we're almost conflicting at that point, if we're almost. I fighting think you, two I think separate battles. I think you find out where they're going and what you're heading because this isn't. There's no perfect answer. Yeah. You know how do you come about making change? Sometimes if you want to take down the enemy, you take. You don't just shoot them in the front. You shoot them in the back side. You hit it from different directions, which gives you. Like I said, I, I see things from a different point of view, and, they, and that's kind of the cool thing with the businesses and stuff. I, I walk into stuff because I'm not a racer, right? Yeah. So I walk in and say, okay, well, I'm not you. I'm not. I'm not I don't build race cars. I don't have this. I walk in, but I've dealt with EPA on farming. So I look at this at a whole different different view than what you do. And so, no, I, I think you, you go for it, but you also say, hey, look, maybe you're good at this. I'm good at this. We need somebody to help here. And you divvy it up that way. Like, so they may have a great thing at turn 14 going, but you can bring awareness here. Well, we need someone to help us. You create another flank. There's nothing wrong with that. I think yeah. it's actually the best thing you could actually do. The art do. of war. Art yeah, of war. Yeah. Yep. That is always the uh, yep. build, build up the conquer. groups. And, and like I said, people have certain things they bring to the table. And the biggest thing is to sit on your hands. If you think you want to help and not, you know, not to do it, a lot of people are afraid to take that step. Yeah. Cause all the time people are like, Hey Jay, I like what you're talking. Cause a lot of my dealers call me. A lot of these in shops call me freaking out. Like, dude, what do we do? Cause you've dealt with the government. Yeah. Yeah. We're scared to death. Don't be afraid. You know, there's, there's options out. There. There's a way to fight this, but the worst thing to do is, you know, everybody asks what I do. Then it's like, well, did you ever take the next step? No. <laughs> like, yeah, well, so well, we talked for an hour and a half, two hours about it, and I'm fired up. I'm going to do this, and you're exactly right. Well, did you make a phone call? No. Did you call your congressman? Like, hey, I told you. Here, I mean, I've went as far as to actually give people phone numbers. Like, here, you could line this up, call and schedule a meeting. Go meet with them. Tell them what your issues are. Did you ever do that? No, I'm too busy. Well, yeah. I wonder er- if I everybody could... can create a little bit of time to do it. Yeah. I mean, we all have time to do it. I'm extremely busy. I can make time to go meet and do, and do this to help people. But everybody's got, they got to, they got to take the, 
the wheel for themselves and drive it. Yeah, I'd almost love to try to sit down with like a local politician on something like this and actually get their... Who's your congressman? I don't know offhand. See, there you I go. Know. I know, I'm part of the problem. So what I would do, Cooper, I'm going to challenge you. Yeah. Within the next 30 days, I want you to go visit your congressman's office. I want you to go talk to him. I want to say, hey, I'm Cooper Bugatti. I'm here. I've got this. I would like to talk about these yep. discussions. Line up a meeting. Call the office. Figure out which office is closest. They'll probably bring a staffer in to meet with you because when you deal with congressmen, it's great to talk to them. But when you're here with a million subjects, they can't know everything. Yeah. So when you go to an office, they'll have, you know, one will be like, this will be under environmental you know, they have an ax. They all have a different person. You'll talk to them. Sometimes people reject, like, I actually didn't get a chance to talk to the congressman. Well, you might. You never know. But it's always good to say, hey, I went in. You know, at least they got to talk to you. These are my concerns. They'll say, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll get with the congresswoman. We'll have a discussion, and then we'll get back with you. And a lot of times they'll call you back, and then they'll schedule meetings. So my challenge to you is to be able to document this, to show people, hey, I'm just yeah. like you. I'm going to go in, and I'm going to introduce myself, and you're nervous. You don't know what to say. And you sit across from them, and you and you look at the pictures, and it's it's kind of cool, and you just say, "Hey, man, this is this affects my business. This is what I'm worried about," you know. And then you never know that maybe the congressman will stop in, and then you get to know them. You know, for me, I knew our congressmen, our senators by name. They used to call me on my cell all the time. I mean, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And people are like, "Oh, you know them?" But like, yeah, I know them. They know me. They know I'm working on. But the most important thing was my relationship with the staffers. Huh, because they could get you in really easily, and they, well, could, they, they deal with everything. They deal with everything. It's like, yeah. okay, you have a race car, but you got so many parts in there. Do you know what everything No, no, this goes on here, this yeah, goes on there. Do you, talk to your but, tuner, your engine builder. Exactly, your, and that's how they are. But once you build that relationship with them, but I think what the racing world really could use is someone to actually show them how to do it the right way. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, where a lot of what people don't, like that's what a, one of the holdups is, is, Everybody thinks I'm not the guy. Yeah. I'm not the guy to well, they know wanna, But they want to know from you. They yeah. want to hear you. What do you, what, you know, don't tell me what the shop, how's this affecting you, Cooper? Yeah, I'll happily okay. go in and talk how, to the senator. Okay, you're working with, uh, you know, I understand you're working with induction performance. What is induction's performance, you know, mm-hmm. how do they feel about this? You know, hey, this is a friend of mine. This is his shop. This is what he's seeing. And so, and you bring up, you know, maybe, hey, um, you know, A, it's federally legal, you can bring that up, but would there be a way to create sanctuary states for racing? Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many different ways you can go about it, because then you can, you know, you do that, then you line up a meeting with the governor's office, and you find out, okay, well, there's Congress taken care of. Congress, Senate, and governor's office. You get to know, and then talk, and just come in, and a lot of people, yeah. people times, I... I used to take groups of people. I've been to D.C. so many times. I would take a lot of groups out there, and people get in there and they're like, "I'm going to go in," and, I'm gonna, and then they freak out and they can't. They lose. They forget what they're going to say. Yeah. You know, and then they get all intimidated, and just go and take a deep breath. They just, well, like I said, just real simple, man. Just, well, how can we help you? How could we help you? They work for you. People forget that. Yeah. Yeah, and no, I think we live in a good state where we have a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of good people that actually care about this kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm not in California yeah. or New York fighting this. Like we have. DeSantis, he actually he would show up at a racetrack. Yeah, he would he would watch a race. You know what I mean? Like he's he seems like that type of like. Right. Well, you know, big cares thing. About that, the well, big thing that you really don't see from PRI or anybody, and this is what I always try to tell people is what's the economic data to support the racing industry? Oh, it's a fifteen billion dollar industry. Well, I don't care. Everything's a multi billion dollar industry. Yeah. 
but how many jobs, how many shops, what's it actually creating? Because, okay, well, that's cool on your car, but who makes your cranks? Who makes those? Where did this come? That's jobs. That's jobs. That's jobs. They really don't think about all of that when you think about it. They think, oh, well, racing a guy on the streets. Okay, well, guess what? Fine. Yeah, we'll find them. They're doing the EPA stuff. How many hands touch your actual car? Think about that for a minute. Oh, I mean, there's there's thousands of tens of thousands I mean, injectors of jobs. to spark plugs to gearbox to drive shaft the guy that takes the aluminum out of the ground no but do you ever hear when we're discussing these issues does do they does seat mark pr ever bring that up oh we gotta protect the racer well okay well that's one racer yeah but there's 1500 people that got that racer where that racer is mm-hmm. proofs in numbers they don't they don't see stuff that way that's that, that's my vision that's that's why when i look at this my my uh, you know fifty thousand foot view. That's how I would tackle and go after it. That's that's an awesome insight. And maybe that. even say, okay, you know, I'm gonna do one up. I'm gonna go meet with my congressman. But when I walk in there, how many people work at um, tuner shop? Uh, I don't know if like I don't know how many of your parts people you actually know that make them. Okay, my um, my um, drive shaft. How many? Just call them. How many employees do you have? Yeah. Okay, well, here's the team parts of my parts car. Of my here's car. the total here's number, the total of, employees number employees of employees that make the parts. Make the parts that... Oh, shit, now you're not just a racer. Now, you, now, you've got, now you're a community. Yeah. And that's how you go about it. Yeah, take every, every asset on my car, itemize it, see how many employees just took to make my car. Just the basics. And just walk in and say, here's, here's 10 to 15 pieces on my car, but guess what? They're trying to kill us, and guess yeah. who this affects? Guess what? My drive shaft is made in Clearwater. They don't think about that. Okay, well, fine. We'll get rid of the racer. Yeah. But what's the repercussion? That domino effect. They don't think about the domino effect. Yeah, where it all just takes out everyone. Yep. And then those, like, cities that were built around building cars. Right. That have just been kind of decimated. Detroit, like, Yep. All the tool and die shops making the one-off. I mean... So, like I said, that, to me, that is where you go. That that how do you see, Jay? How do you make the difference? That's that right there. That's the holy grail. That is mm-hmm. test the cars, show the EPA. Hey, this is less emissions. Here's number of businesses. Here, just on your car alone. Here's here's how many people, companies, employees. Yeah, you show that. And well, like somebody right. like Doug Cook recently, he bought a company out in California, moved it to Bradenton, moved every single employee. To Bradenton, yeah, they didn't lose a single one on the move. Like they right. all came, and now it's this even more flourishing business, mm-hmm. local in Bradenton, right? And that's like a perfect example of why this could be a sanctuary place, yeah, where we can make the parts, we can do the racing, yep. the people live here, mm-hmm. the economy is doing better because of that, because there are breaks made in Bradenton. Yep, the economy is stronger in a whole. Correct. Exactly. There you go, brother. That's how you do it. Yeah. That's how you fight the government. That's how you fight the EPA. Well, that's freaking awesome, man. Um, I think we can probably end it off here. Next time you come back, I'd love to have you on again because yeah. this is so insightful, and I love hearing all about the things that you do. I, I try to listen to your stuff and um, <laughs> kind of consider you a bit of a mentor in that aspect mm-hmm. and just from years of listening to your yep. and seeing your drive on this stuff. but. Man, thank you all yep. for everything. Thank you for the fuel. Cool. Um, people can find you, Ignite Racing on yep, Instagram. Yep, Ignite Racing Fuel on Instagram. Give us a call. Uh, my cell phone number, 765-603-1951, and that's actually really my number, and uh, nobody else does that. And you can call yeah. me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you'll call I will get Jay back and- with you.
he'll be on a tractor somewhere potentially. Yep, exactly. So thank you so much for being Sounds on. Sounds good. Um, can't wait to uh, get with you in a month and show you that I did that. Show me how you did. Yes. Heck, or maybe I'll fly down here and grade you, show you how it's done. Good deal, man. Well, right. thank you. Thank you guys for watching. We will see you next time. Yep, see you. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.